are you how are you feeling about may madness part two the sequel i'm i'm as with like all things <laughs> i guess that's kind of a weird way to put that i'm i'm getting sad that we're getting close to the end not that, that, that we still have some to un, uncover but but i am a little i would love to be able to live in this world for much much longer i would and, have loved for her to have made more films yeah, I watched her speech um, when Nichols won his AFI Lifetime Achievement Award, and it was just so funny and so brilliant. It really is, I mean, obviously, and I know that we've said this over and over and over again, you know, that she should be more heralded. And But yeah, it's just, it's when you look at Ishtar and the financial disaster that it was, and she's really the only person that comes out of it and doesn't, or doesn't come out of it, really, right? I mean, like, Hoffman goes on immediately to make Rain Man, with Levinson and Cruz wins another Academy Award. Beatty is immediately able to go in and make this huge multi-million dollar fantasy project of his, Dick Tracy, which he still owns the rights to today and then still occasionally will threaten to do a sequel so no one else can do that. And, you know, and, and you know, that wasn't a that wasn't a huge hit, but it was a huge picture like pre I mean, it wasn't like pre Batman 88 or, or anything like that, but it was it was still a huge like tent pole picture. There was advertising. There's 800 posters for it. And it was a big it comic book movie. Right. I mean, right, right. In, 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 in its style as well. Had Madonna. You know, it's just a whole thing. Right. I mean, and these are guys that up until this point, up until Ishtar's point, you know, Hoffman hadn't made a film in five years. I think Beatty hadn't made a film in, in, in another five years. So it was Tootsie and Red's. Which Wayne May both had a part in both of those, right? And in, in their success, right? And so those guys take off, basically the from the early '80s to the mid '80s. So they're able to headline this film when they're known bodies at this point. I mean, they're obviously not nobodies, but in the you know consciousness of mid to late '80s films. There are old men that are head that that. <laughs> there's no reason you're dumping. Five million dollars into their laps at in nineteen eighty five dollars to star in a huge what is going to be a Christmas release. It doesn't right. end up getting released in Christmas. It's going to be a Christmas release, and you know, and expecting this to carry over and and really, it's just a it's a crazy like everything around it is crazy. So out of all of that, the 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 abysmal box office failure, which was one of these things where, and we'll get into this, I know, but it was. Hated before it was even released. It was dumped on by its studio. It was dumped on by its, its stars. Yeah, everyone and the crew. <laughs> and and so it had so much going up against it. And yeah, obviously it dies. It becomes this. It becomes a national joke to this day. It is still a thing where you say Ishtar. You realize it. It one is one of the you know just notorious flops of all time in, in Hollywood history. And it is and then and then and coupled with that, it, then it is just in, it, it is assumed that it, that it is a terrible movie, that it's one of the worst movies ever made. Right? It's not as bad as that. No, no, it's not. And yeah, May never recovers. May doesn't direct anything again until she directs a TV documentary about Mike Nichols in 2016. You know, 30 years later, she doesn't direct anything. Now, she does go on to. Was that a PBS American Masters? I think so. It right? might have been. Okay. Yeah. And. So it's it is crazy 
that her career was so affected by this when no one else, when everyone else seemingly came out relatively unscathed and yeah, we can get into it, but it's, yeah. but, um, I was going to say, yeah, we'll, we'll, but a, we'll but, dig more into that. But, a, but a, a talent like this who only has four films under her belt is, it's really, it's depressing. It's, it's awful. Right. So, okay. Welcome back screamers. If you didn't, <laughs> if you didn't know our feelings on Elaine May before, I think you're getting them even more now. So today we're going to talk about Mikey and Nikki and Ishtar. And these are May's last two Last two films, other than the the PBS American Masters, uh, Mike Nichols show, they they again are continuations of of May's kind of themes of these dysfunctional duos, but also this kind of quest for truth and honesty in a way, yeah, uh, as well. Before we get into that, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the Real House Foundation and the mini movie marathon that we touched on last time, and that you touch on in our trailer at the end of every episode, <laughs> and that you stop strangers on the street and talk right, up I, I and, cost and, them and right. hand out um, bumper <laughs> stickers. <laughs> I just, I just park up outside of a, uh, a Cinemark with a bullhorn and, and you try to make me wear that sandwich board at one point. And, <laughs> right. Just flip it around. I'm like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the Real House Foundation just recently held its Mystery Movie Minithon number six. Uh, I, we've, we've spoken about the, the Real House Foundation and its mission of trying to cultivate the next generation of film lovers by targeting at-risk and underprivileged kids here in our community, providing, the, providing them a cinematic experience and discussion of, of the film afterwards. This was all born out of a... A very narcissistic um, endeavor. I, I wanted to. Of right, course, it right, was right. right. Oh, I mean, <laughs> one, if you know me, and the two most endeavors are narcissistic. <laughs> I was going to say, right? ooh, newsflash. <laughs> <laughs> the altruistic reason why we do this podcast <laughs> of getting back to the comic. Do, do you want to get into the philosophical discussion about altruism and does it actually exist? <laughs> we'll just do a record, a needle drop right here, and. <laughs> We, we fooled you all along. This is why we're really doing this. Ha ha ha. No, it's funny because in the bathroom here, there is a sign that says there's like a podcast about stopping human trafficking. And then I, then I come in here and do this and I'm like, <laughs> we, what are we, we even doing here? We're utilizing the space for its utmost potential. <laughs> this is why podcast studios exist. <laughs> Somebody, somebody doing altruistic good of stopping human trafficking. Hey, let's talk about movies, kids. <laughs> Look, I'm against human trafficking. I mean, if you ask me any day of the week, I'm going to say, do you support human trafficking? I'm going to say no. Every single time. I'm going to say You're not no. even going to waver. No, yeah. I, I shouldn't. If I hesitate, it's just because I didn't understand the question at first. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fair. I mean, so yes. So the 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 mystery movie. So the Real House Foundation and the mystery movie Minithon was all born out of a desire to do a birthday party and to bring people in um, and to do some sort of like marathon programming of films and just have to get around and watch movies. So we've done this five different or six different times now, um, kind of rolling through the films that we've done. Um, mystery movie Minithon number one was Muppets Take Manhattan and Friday Thirteenth Part Eight Jason Takes Manhattan. So they all have kind of like loose themes, and so the the idea is to show underseen or like lesser known films. Now, those two films were obviously fit a theme that was kind of fun just to do. Year two, I did Electric Dreams, which I believe is a 1984 romantic comedy comedy starring Lenny Van Dolan and Virginia Madsen and Bud Court as a voice of a computer. 
It is a love triangle where an architect pours champagne on his keyboard and the computer comes becomes sentient and they both fall in love with a cellist that lives in their apartment building. It's very, it, it was one of those movies that was always showing on HBO when I was a kid. So it was just, it was in constant rotation. Why can't rotation. they just fall in love with Virginia Madsen? They, they, just be like, I fell in love with Virginia Madsen. <laughs> right. Especially 1984, Virginia Madsen. So, and then I coupled that with Primer, which was a, mm-hmm. uh, a very small independent film directed by Shane Carruth uh, here in the Dallas Fort Worth area for about $7,000 about time travel. So kind of a, 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 a technology gone wild kind of theme there. The third year I did um, Triplets of Belleville, which is like a silent um, animated you know uh, film about... Very French. Very, very French. Uh, very Jacques Tati. Um, mm. And it, about these three women who uh, go on and help this other grandmother find her kidnapped uh, Tour de France cyclist son. I coupled that with Turbo Kid, which is a post-apocalyptic thriller about a... Um, a, a young boy who's trying to he rides around the wasteland on a bike so the bike theme was there on both of those year four i did uh i did brigsby bear which was a, a film about a young man who had been kidnapped when he was a young boy and and his uh parents who kidnapped him uh created this television show for him because he made them but he they made him believe that the, the world had ended and basically the only thing that was left was this, this tv show and once he gets out he tries to recreate it. it's a really beautiful heartwarming funny film coupled that with being there kind of a television theme uh peter sellers al ashby last year we did a mamet theme where it was uh the spanish prisoner which was one of my favorite films and heist which is just a ridiculous mamet um just dialogue that just falls off the tongue type film <laughs> and with gene hackman Yes. Yeah. I, I have been watching, um, a bit of Gene. I mean, just, just, and he's how I've I've kind of like regained and not that I ever lost it, but kind of regained an appreciation for Hackman and (laughs) what he brings to the table. He's so good. He's really good. And, and he, he's always looked about 52 years old. Oh yeah. He didn't ever since he was born. He (laughs) was born like a 52 year old man and then didn't look like he was you know, 60 until he was 94. Right. It's like how Steve Martin has always looked the same basically since he became popular and up until today. I recently saw the Royal Tenenbaums on, on the big screen at Texas theater over the weekend. And it was it, just watching him in it and watching him play with Anderson's dialogue. He's so good in that. Um, and then, so this year we showed um, two films, uh, VHS and kind of retro technology was kind of the, the, the overarching theme. Again, these are all just ridiculously loose themes. So we showed a film called nine days and, and a film called Strawberry Mansion. Nine Days is a is a, the first film by writer director Edson Oda. It came out, I believe, it, it premiered it premiered at Sundance in 2020, which was obviously the worst time to ever premiere in Sundance. But it has a huge cast, and it's crazy to me that no one really knows about it. Yeah, Winston uh, Duke, Winston Zazie Duke, Bates. Zazie Bates, yeah, uh, 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 Bill Skarsgård, Benedict, Benedict Wong, Wong, Tony Hale. Uh, it is about a man who is for lack of a better term, an overseer of souls that he gets to decide who, when a new birth happens, he gets to decide who gets to go down into it. You basically go down and live a life on earth. And it, it, the, the premise of the film is that there are a bunch of these people who do this and you get to watch over 30 people throughout. And once one of them dies then you get to replace that soul. And it, I, I was going to make a joke about like picking the sperm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's what it is. It's kind of a look who's talking just about nine different. But existential. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so over the course of nine days, he encounters a, a group of people who didn't exist before this nine days. And if they don't get selected, won't exist after this nine days. And he tries to determine who will the best life and who will survive the best. Now, one of the people that that has was under his 
um, watch the person who's died um, committed suicide. We're not really sure at the beginning of the film if they committed suicide or not. They were in a car accident. But this eats Winston Duke's will, his, his character's name, it eats him up and he can't understand what he did, why he chose wrong. You're given the impression that, that Will is relatively new at this. He has actually lived a life on Earth. And now that this is his job, um, he seems very in tune or like he just he has a, he wears all of this on, you know, on himself to 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 make sure that he's protective over these 30 souls that he's chosen. And then he's challenged by the people that come in, specifically Tony Hale as uh, Zazie Bet beats and then Spil Bill Skarsgård of the three that and Benedict Wong is like kind of his partner in crime helps him basically make the best choice. So they're kind of working in tandem. And it's just really like um, beautiful, poetic. Duke is so I, and I'll let you talk about, you know, how you felt about it. But, yeah. but for me, Duke is so wonderful in this film. Ridiculously, like, I mean, that he's, you know, in these high profile films like Black Panther and us. And but he carries himself so differently in nine days. He carries himself as this really, I mean, like this hulking guy who's also but just like very you get the impression that under his life he was been bullied and didn't live the most best life he might have actually killed killed himself as well um that's never really truly uh but you get the impression it's never really it's said that explicitly but he carries himself this big huge guy he's probably six three two fifty i mean he's just a brick he's taller shit than that, I think. yeah i think so and and he, he the way that he carries himself in the film the way that he walks the way that he runs he it, he he can be big and looming and he understands his size but then for the most part you realize internally he is a small you know he, he thinks of himself as a small person and it's just really like he sits there all day and watches these 30 retro television screens and and goes back and forth and tries to figure out what he did wrong and how the other people that are doing this can put such awful people in, you know, on earth to do the bad things that they do. Um, and it's just a really, really, I, I think it's one of those films that is the more you watch it and however your philosophical and, and uh, bent goes towards religion and, and towards souls and, and metaphysics and physics and whatever, how that, I think it all kind of allows a lot of interpretation and, and discussion at least. Oh yeah. And Winston Duke is six, five. <laughs> um, I think he would be upset that you tried to short shift him. To shorten him. Yeah. But he is, I mean, in this movie, especially he is very much a gentle giant, kind of a hulking figure who is sensitive and articulate and well-spoken and, a thinker. I mean, to be stereotypical, you don't think about those. You don't think about Shaquille O'Neal being being really kind of smart and eloquent. I mean, you just right. don't. Um, however, we do that. But yeah, it was. I, I that was the first time I had seen Nine Days. It was one that when it first came out, I was like, oh, I should go see that. And then I just never did. <laughs> right. It just kind of fell off like the radar, and it wasn't out at the theaters for very long. And I never like thought to like stream go it back to it at home. Um, I think it does leave a lot open for discussion, especially this idea about how certain how certain people get here and how certain people live. And I don't just mean how do they go about life, but how do they make it through the fucking day? And some of them don't. I mean, right. as we see in this film, but then the idea of this is the selection process of how people get here, of how people get to be your neighbor, how people get to be your friends, how people get to be your loved ones is a really thought provoking and sort of delicate, I think, story. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I think it does, it, it does a couple of things just so very well. The, the, the section where they bring in the other person that does this to provide a, alternative angle to the people that he's only been able because he sees everything 
through their eyes. The basically, the, you know, the, the vision that he's given is basically through, you know, through, you know, I mean, essentially it's their point of view. And so he doesn't really, so what they want to hide from themselves, they hide from Will as well. And so at a certain point, um, Benedict Wong brings in another person like Will who had chosen her like cousin, cousin, right? Yes. Yeah. And they end up finding a suicide note. And so it provides Will with some answers, but it really just then provides him with more yeah. questions and breaks him up. The scene where he's in the room and it's projected on the wall of her when she's playing the piano and, and you see the the tear form over the eye. So, so well done. Like she's never, she, he's like, he, she never cries except when she plays and you just see this like rainbow come up in the, in the, in the corner of the screen and he's just kind of like dumbstruck by it. It's so, so very well done. And then throughout as as will realizes these people that he's talking to won't be chosen he tries and and they've been tasked with watching the world as well through the people that will has chosen so they can determine whether or not how they would react to certain scenarios what they like what they didn't like and will when he chooses not to, to choose them or not to let them continue in this process he ends up creating a a an experience for them so they while they won't get life they won't get to you know they won't get to experience that on earth they may have just one moment and he does two things where he builds a kind of a beach um, moment for one of the people. And then he be, he builds this uh, bicycle ride. <laughs> it's so, so, so good. He brings mm -hmm. in these screens. And it, part of it, like, too, watching it on the screen that we were watching it on in South, in, in South, in, in Stage West, mm -hmm. on kind of that makeshift screen. It's not really truly a theater. And having, it was just so cool. That as, was as an that interesting connection. Comes up. It? Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. It's just visually beautiful, and 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 it's it, and it was really really interesting of like kind of a lo-fi way to to show this really really cool aesthetic in, in the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I really I appreciated the film for its like you said earlier this poetic meditation on on a real subjective topic, and part of that is what makes a best life, what makes a life worth living, right? I mean, you know, the partially examined life is not worth living or whatever, but, but this kind of raises those questions of, you know, why this person, why not this person? Right. And the three people that end up at the end, right? You have Tony Hale who, and you have uh, Zazie Beetz and you have Bill Skarsgård who are all wildly different personalities. And of course they're portrayed as adults in this point. So, and when they, when they go down to earth, they'll lose, they'll lost all their memories about the time with Will and they'll live a life basically. And they are all different. They all react differently. And the one you think obviously that he should choose Zazie Beetz because she's the most empathetic and that she's the one that, that is the most, um, seemingly observant and 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 he goes with someone who is much more hard he's much more and obviously in reaction to the suicide he goes with someone who under who would react and is i guess in a much more aggressive fashion uh to the thing to do the slings and arrows that life would would throw at him rather than um rather than Zazie Beast because he it seems like she's more in line with or more in tune with the violinist and and, and also himself right I mean right. It, I mean I think that's something that that again isn't explicitly said but is hinted at that he was clo more closely aligned to the violinist and Zazie Beats character and he doesn't want what happened to him and the violinist to happen to someone else and right so let's pick the guy with a little bit of edge right who's going to fight back against the bullies and not again like this is kind of the beauty of this film is you can kind of make a case for both right. of you know either decision that that was made there and 
you know, and that's why the subjective of what is the best life. Um, spoiler, it's mine. I'm kidding. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> we laugh because it is not true. <laughs> All right. Tell us a little bit about the second, the second so, film that we watched. Uh, Strawberry Mansion, when I first, I saw it at the Oak Cliff Film Festival in 2021. And I... This is the type of film that I just usually end up just falling in love with. It's it's visually wonderful. I mean, it really is. It's like it's like it's like John Waters and Wes Anderson had a baby, and that baby took acid a lot. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> but but Strawberry Mansion is by um, a, a, a directing and writing duo. Um, one of them's name is Albert Burney, and the other one's name is Kentucker Oddly, which is a great. Kentucker is an amazing first. That's name. so good. <laughs> um, it is about a. Not too distant yeah, future. Yeah, good luck. Right. <laughs> it, the, the plot is really particularly thin. It is about a not too distant future where uh, the IRS taxes our dreams. So um, Kentucker oddly plays this auditor who goes in and is going to audit this older woman. Her, her She hasn't been audited in a long time. She hasn't paid her taxes, so he's going to go audit her dreams. Now... The dreams have all been updated and the way that they record our dreams have all been updated up to like computers now. But unfortunately, this lady had never upgraded her system. So she all of her dreams are recorded on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of VHS tapes. Uh, and so as the auditor, as Kentucker is going through his audits, he starts to find himself pulled into her dreams and actually where she seems to interact with him as an auditor in her dreams. And it turns out that that this woman has discovered that advertising agencies have, have been starting to insert advertisements into our dreams in order to sell us things. And she and at one point her husband um, had developed this blocker and it turns out through um, as, as the story goes along that the person who invented this insertion of advertisements into dreams is her son. And they've kind of been keeping her in this desolate, isolated home so that she won't unveil, uh, you know, unveil the plans of, of doing this because no one just knows, knows this is actually happening. And then it's just this bizarre David Lynchian mindfuck of a movie, but not like in a racerhead scariness, but but much it is just it's. It really is. It's like um, Charlie Kaufman. It, it, it really is just this whole he he starts to start living in these dream periods and starts to have this kind of um, dissected uh, reality between what, you know, of, of, of what's real in the dreams and what's real in his real life. And he goes off and he 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 loses her for a little while and he goes off and this is this ship that's that's manned by people with mouse heads and he's <laughs> fighting this demon um, who's trying to keep him and her uh, chained up and so they can't get out and tell the story all the while these advertisements are coming more and more aggressive in his head to try to get him to continue to buy things and to keep him in line it, it, it's it's kind of inexplicable it, it does it, it it you have to give yourself over to it a little bit and you know that was the one i was really <laughs> worried about the most in, in the sense of like losing people uh, now everyone gives kind of grace i mean especially when they come to these types of things i mean turbo kid's not the you know not a film for hmm. everybody jason part of 13 part eight is not, the, not a film for everybody it's not <laughs> By the time you get to eight, you've either bought in or you haven't. So. I thought, I mean, didn't that have multiple Academy Award nominations that, that Most, year? Yes. Yeah. I think Kane Hodder won um, Best Actor okay. over. Yeah. I can't remember who he beat out, but maybe. It doesn't think, matter because he won. <laughs> right. No, it's it's like a total vibe movie. I mean, it really is. It's fun to sort of lose yourself in those visuals because on one hand, they're really cool, but also you can tell that like they're kind of held together with scotch tape and stuff. <laughs> right. Very right. kind of lo-fi, but, but also immersive. You can try to pull like plot threads, but everything kind of loops back on itself anyway. Right. And it's just 
look, the, the main kind of like thread and theme, this idea of capitalism encroaching in our dreams, I think is hilarious and, and, and probably not so untrue, you know, because look, my phone just popped up <laughs> with with an ad for the for the hat that you're wearing. And, and, and I don't understand. <laughs> right. But it is it's eerily kind of close to what we to what we kind of go through and what we sort of see every day without even thinking about it. I, it, it was just really cool. And it, it's so like it's so DIY from a perspective of special effects and but also really well done. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, like to the point where like it, you, you, yes, it looks like you could do this on your, it looks very Neptune Frost-esque. Yeah. And, and so it looks like you can do this on your own, but also then it, but I mean, the way that, the way that it's animated, the way that it's put together, it, it has Rankin and Bass tones. It has, it, you know, there's all kinds of things that fall into this, that, that it really is just, if you're willing to kind of let yourself go for the ride of an hour and 30 minutes in this movie, I, I think people really dig it. And that's, that, that's the type of film that I really like to bring to this is that's a film that no one would have sought out. Like you, you, you might've even heard of it, especially if you go to, you know, to fan, to fantastic fest or things like that. But outside of that, if you have movie, it's been on movie. Oh, is it on movie? Yeah, now? Okay, and so. that's where I. So that's how I'd seen it first, and um, so you had seen it. Before yeah, okay, I had cool. seen it before. No, I. I well, in in Kentucky, oddly, is part of. He's friends with a bunch of other people, and so he was in Amy Simons' last film, like She yes. Dies Tomorrow. He's in. He was in the uh, the Christmas movie, Christmas Again, I think, where he plays a Christmas tree salesman. Right. That was directed by someone else, like in that group, and so all these guys, and 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 what's her name, uh, Katie Lynn Shield, and and so they all kind of do stuff together that horror picture you're next mm -hmm. right? yeah, so yeah, yeah. The, that those guys they're all kind of like loosely affiliated so i knew his face i, I could i could never it's weird that i couldn't remember ken tucker <laughs> right <laughs> but i was like oh that guy he's in this other stuff and he was in amy simon's sunshine starring right. with um Caitlin Shield, he was fucking great in that. So I, the film came to my attention through that as well. So no, I had seen it. And, and when you said you were worried about that, I'm like, I don't really, I'm like, it's so cool. Like, That's just my like, nature of things. Yeah. That I love putting any movies together. Right? Look, it's other like, people's opinions suck. <laughs> 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 Thanks for listening. <laughs> I've been pleasantly surprised. I mean, I, I, you know, I know that for the, like I said, most people are relatively, you come in with an open mind and, and, and once people are showing you something, especially like this, it's a little bit, it, it plays a little bit differently um, than it would if you're like, well, oh, let's, let's get together and watch this. And you're like, oh, fuck you. That was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, you know, not to, not to speak for your event, but it's, it, it feels much more like, let's just have a party. Let's just kind of hang out and have fun. And right. you know what? I'm going to throw in some movies and whatever, <laughs> enjoy them. If you don't, fine you're here for charity don't be a bitch about it yeah and you can always go out to the lobby and hang yeah, out yeah you can a, always get a drink go get a drink go right. get a drink go get some more food it's fine but i mean so it's it's it has that kind of air which is which is great and i'm cognizant i i try to I, like there are films that i want to show that aren't fun movies i try to i try to to lend myself towards like not showing these harrowing like just <laughs> period pieces or just or just like overly wrought dramas. Um, so there's it's usually a try to have a sense of fun with them, uh, you know. And and I like all these movies. I'm not obviously going to show you. And I have a, it's weird that like when I'm watching them. So yeah, I there's they just hit they either hit a mark or they don't. The, so if you're ever interested in what the films that I want to show that don't make the mark. That's the at home film fest. So gotcha. the screening, the ones that I screen during the weeks uh, throughout the year are ones that are 
kind of close or things that I or, or I want to try out to see if they make it or not. Um, yeah, Deep End wouldn't have worked, weirdly, because on part of me wants to say, like, maybe it would have. But that is a kind of that is a weird, weird film. I really liked it, though. Oh, no. Had you not seen it before? No, I haven't. Oh, OK. <laughs> Moonlighting is really good, too. I don't know if you've seen I have not. I'm not. So with I, Jeremy was, Irons. And, it um, was weird that I chose the director of EO. I I, I was just looking Skull, for off Skulls Maninsky. I yeah. can't say that. Uh, yeah. And so basically, I was just looking through my um, my Plex server uh, just to see. I was looking at romances and kind of like then I filter them based on. <laughs> Well, it's February. It's February, right? So I was looking for offbeat romances, and then I sorted by the 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 oldest date, and then I cut out like all the 1920s and 30s stuff, and then I got into the 70s, and I was like, oh, let me look up let me look up Deep End because I just I grabbed it from somewhere and was just put it away as things I'll watch later. But uh, no, I'd never seen it. I, I thought it was great. I thought it was I thought it was a wonderful film. Oh, it's I, fantastic. Yeah. But and honestly, Deep End might have made the cut in, in, a, in, a, in a um at some point it's a little too sexually charged to, to for that kind of crowd especially because of the i mean i always tell people when we go into these um you know this these are not necessarily this is not an event we are a kids charity this is not a kids event though so right obviously right. we're not sh- we're showing films and some people might want to bring their kids i'm always if people do i usually end up like these movies are secret so when you come to the f- event you don't know what i'm showing um and so I unless I, you guess the obtuse clues, <laughs> unless you yeah, unless you guess Halle Berry in a straw hat, which is my favorite clue that I've ever done for Strawberry Mansion. Um, don't, don't shake your head. That's a pretty good clue. That's a pretty good. Clue. <laughs> True. Um, and I will tell people the rate the the yeah. ratings of the films and kind of what the parents' guide is on IMDb, just in case you do want to bring a kid. Um, but. Ultimately, the most for the most part, the, the films were main secret. So, so yeah, Deep End, Deep End might make it. If you haven't seen Deep End, go see Deep End. But it, uh, it's good. Other than that, support the Real House Foundation. Absolutely. And if you're in the area, keep your eyes open for next year's event and and other events, other ways to volunteer, at home screenings. Yeah, um, I'm charging Jason for that plug. That was not. <laughs> that was not Nothing comes cheap, right? Not, well, I am cheap. That's a different podcast. Back to our altruism. Altruism is always a narcissistic. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Speaking of weird romances, let's get into Mikey and Nikki. Peter Falk is Mikey. I got a terrific suggestion for you, Nikki. I suggest you find somebody you can trust. John Cassavetes is Nikki. They're gonna kill me, Nikki. They're gonna kill me. Mikey and Nikki. On a night like this, there are no rules. What do you think they're planning? To shoot you in a movie house? Mikey and Nikki. I'm really getting the treatment tonight. Tonight's my night. On a night like this, there is no trust. They're going to kill me. Honey, I'm serious now. Well, I'm not interested. I'm coming with you. There is no time. like this there is no choice peter falk john cassavetes mikey and nikki written and directed by elaine may ma 
If anything happens to me, Mikey did it. How do we feel that it's not called Mickey and Nikki? And so I just so that's because that's what I want to call it. Every time I, I when I when I start talking about it, <laughs> I want to call it Mickey and Nikki. I know that's not it. I know that's a personal failing on my part. But I just want to get it out there in case I do call it because I. When I listen back to this stupid podcast, I do find myself like <laughs> saying a lot of things incorrectly. Like, and and so I, if the if there are listeners out here that are like, Jesus Christ, why is he saying that again? Believe me, I get it. It's just when I start when you start talking as, as much as we talk, then it becomes right. you get stuck on things. Like when I'm going to call Brendan Fraser or Brendan Fraser Fraser, that kind of shit. I, yeah, I get it. I understand. I I know that there's real words that to use, and I'm not always using them. I apologize. I'm annoyed by it more than you are. I believe me. So. To air is human, get your own podcast. <laughs> to get your own podcast it's, it's rocket chasing. It's not hard because we did it. That's how I know it's not hard. <laughs> so, so yes, it's not Mickey and Nikki. It's Mikey and Nikki and starring Peter Falk and John Cassavetes. I mean, look, two guys, and I think we'll talk about this kind of as we go, but two guys for me who are underrated period, both as actors and Cassavetes as a filmmaker himself. Kind of looking into Cassavetes, I don't know how many times I saw things written that was like, and Cassavetes had another comeback with, I'm like, <laughs> he had, he only did, I mean, a hand, like what, 12 films? Yeah, Is that, something along those lines, yeah. How do you have like multiple comebacks? It's not like, well, and we kind of, and how do you touch on this ever, idea of comeback anyway? What the fuck is a comeback? I mean, he never went away. And nor did he ever reach a height that you would ever say like, oh, well, he's he's clearly the king of Hollywood now. So like and he's fallen off that pedestal. Let him come. I mean, this is right. not some sort of I know, mean, he was he was nominated, I think, what, for supporting actor for the Dirty Dozen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which no one talks about. Well, I mean, look, when was the last time you heard someone talk about John Cassavetes besides me? Yeah, no, no. Okay, one. yeah. <laughs> that says more about like who you're talking to than it does. Like, <laughs> True. Than it does us. But but right. I mean, people don't talk about this guy, I think. As they, sh I mean, look when you think about like American kind of independent films, who else? Yeah, he's really, the father. He is. Yeah, he's the man. I mean, aside from people that we've already talked about, like Larry Cohen and maybe Roger Corman, and like they, these these kind of genre art, like these grindhouse people, right? It, 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 and that was a completely different thing, which is respectable, but not what Casavetes was doing. Right. Right. But and, and and so again, like we don't talk enough about him as a filmmaker, and I don't think we talk enough about him as an actor either. And I think a film like this shows it. And the same thing with Peter Falk. Look, at this time, this film was seventy six ish I mean the timeline is weird on this film too which which I'm sure we'll touch on but at this point Peter Falk he was Columbo Peter Falk equaled Columbo that was it in fact he had to take a break during filming to go back to the next season of Columbo right in, in Columbo at this point it, they were more like films anyway and Cassavetes would sometimes co-star because they were buddies to begin with but but from 68 on I guess 71 on really Peter Falk just was synonymous with Columbo. That's it. And so nobody had seen him in Husbands. No one had talked about him in in, in this, right? Later, he'll do Wings of Desire, where he plays you know, Peter Falk as, the, as a fallen angel. Right. Right. But and I just think it's I think it's a shame because these two are so good in this film. Here's a spoiler. I, I love this film. I absolutely love this film. Look, it is. It is a better Scorsese film than Scorsese was putting out at this time. It's a better Cassavetes film than Cassavetes was putting out at this time. Mm -hmm. it, it's a better Tarantino film than, than, <laughs> than, I mean, it, 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 it is a precursor directed by a woman, which again, I'm not going to, I don't say that as, I mean, but it no, was but just, that's a, what an anomaly, makes it right? so good. 
that's that's part of what makes this film so amazing. If you saw this movie, one, you probably think it was directed by Cassavetes. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's Mm -hmm. one thing. But you would never guess. You would maybe Altman, maybe, uh, you know, (laughs) maybe Coppola. Maybe. Maybe. But it's but you would never have guessed it's directed by Elaine May, a comedian who had just done a new leaf and heartbreak kid, which are two subversive Mike Nichols esque. you know, I mean, you know, they're too subversive, like putting men in their place comedies. And then, OK, the first five to 20 minutes of this movie are pretty funny, but this is not a, this is not a comedy, but it's a, and this is interesting because it is a kind of violent humor. I mean, all of the humor comes from this place of anger and this place of violence and near violence. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's funny, but the the humor is so dark and so physical. and, And it takes, um, you know, a quick turn too. Like we're, I think, you know, the, let's just say the first 15, which I don't necessarily know if that's the t- quite white timeline or not, but we see you, you open up on a, you know, on Cassavetes in a hotel room, an ashtray full of cigarettes. He's in distress and he's trying, he he's calls his friend Mikey and he's trying to get his attention and he throws a towel <laughs> out, out of, out of his window at Mikey on the street and he's and the great line I came when I got your towel I just <laughs> I was on the corner I came up when I got your towel <laughs> and so people when they first saw this movie think knowing that it's a lane movie maybe that they're they're laughing in this Peter Falk Mikey goes down to a corner um you know to a corner diner to oh, this is so wait, take a step back. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so real quick, Mikey and Nikki are like small time hoods. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Give the plot. Yeah. Synopsis, yeah. We didn't, Mike, we didn't do that. I know. I know. We jumped right in because I'm excited to talk about this. <laughs> so Mikey and Nikki, they're small time hoods. They're also lifelong friends. They work for the same kind of outfit. Nikki is a bookie and he has a higher position than Mikey. He works like in the bank, quote unquote, the bank, right? Where the gambling money comes in, right? Where the, where the, where the bet money comes in. Turns out Nikki and another bookie rip off their boss. The other bookie's dead. He's been murdered. We see this in a newspaper clip. Nikki is hiding out in this kind of ramshackle hotel. And that's when he calls Mikey for help. Then it turns into this kind of like one crazy night film. And I'll save the kind of spoiler. We'll kind of, we'll get to that. But, but this is what Mikey, Mikey's like, I'll help you get out of this. I'll help you out of this jam. And then off they go. Nikki's ulcer is acting up because he's fucking stressed because he's going to die, right? I mean, he knows that like they're after him. And then that's when Mikey is trying to give him an acid tablet. He's like, well, you're going to poison me and you're going to like, I won't take it. I'll, I'll, I'll vomit. I'll throw, I'll make myself throw up. And then he goes down to the diner. So go ahead with that. So. Right. So up until this point, but the, all of this is still pretty, pretty comedic, right? I mean, like, it's, it's just ridiculous because it's, it's like two grown men acting like children. <laughs> right. And so. Mikey goes down to the corner diner to get him some milk, essentially get him some cream so he can take his antacid pills so he can take him without, you know, without feeling like in his stomach. Right. And, and so it's, it's a comedy. So as he's asking for this, the, the diner owners, like we don't sell just cream. We, we sell in these little jars. We don't sell it. It's like, until Mikey's like, serve me, get, I'm going to sell me 15 coffees and just give me the cream. He's like, well, I don't even know how to ring you up. And so you're laughing at this like back and forth because it's funny. Like he, Peter Falk is, is trying to negotiate. He wants a cup of milk and a cup and a, and a cup of cream to bring back to his friend. And so <clears throat> finally he convinces the guy to just sell him the coffees and, and not the cream. And the guy goes to get a cup of coffee and Peter Falk just bursts into anger. He jumps over the diner um, counter and starts beating the shit out of this diner owner saying, 
you know, give me the fucking cream, give me the fucking milk. I mean, these are not the exact words we're saying, but I mean, that's the intent. And, and so, and, and so it just it, like, it shifts on a dime where you're thinking that this is just going to be another kind of like bumbling, you know, kind of Falk esque performance. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and just, just, just one more thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, then he just turns into this big, huge ball of rage that's unleashed on this poor man who's just trying to do his job. He's being a dick, though. He was. Being He's a being dick. a dick. <laughs> that's right? true. I, the one of the things I love about that scene too is the two women patrons who are sitting at the diner, like you know, having a donor, having coffee, and this happens, and they don't move a. Mo- they just like are watching with this kind of bemusement, and it's so perfect because it's kind of only they're just like, yeah, whatever. This is old hat. We see right. this shit all the time, and and they're also like. These, because they're uh, also they're two, two black women, two African American women, and you get the feeling they're just like crazy white boys. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is ridiculous. You guys are idiots. This movie feels like very much like 1970s. How I picture 1970s New York to actually be. It's Philadelphia. Right? I know, but yeah, it's, but, yeah, but, no, but, but right, right, <laughs> just inner city, like yeah, just um, very much. It's like flop house hotels, right? All night diners, people just watching things happen, and they're just like. <sighs> Yeah, this happens, right? And that's and that's still going back to May, right? Where she puts all of this in her scenes, everything. <clears throat> you know, she's accused of being this perfectionist, you know, director and and never compromising on anything. But like her films are so rich with like rewatchability that it's crazy that we don't, you know, we don't applaud that to a certain extent. <laughs> no, I mean the texture of this film. So I, I mean, like like these two female patrons, they are stand-ins for us. Oh, absolutely. So to be sort of like meta or whatever, it's not, I don't think it's an accident that they're women watching men. And and so we are the stand in for this female director's point of view on these men because they come off like complete assholes. Well, they're just extensions of a new leaf and a heartbreak kid, right? They're the same men in just different, in different forms and different professions in this case. Except they might punch you in the face. (laughs) Right. But there's still... They're still children at heart. They've never really grown up. These friendships are not friendships. This is just somebody that they've known all their lives. They've chosen professions that are alienating and and, and causing paranoid thoughts. And so you don't have the ability to actually form any sort of real male bonding. And yeah, we're, we're, we're left with these men who are still just infantile as they're adults. And they don't know how to get through life. And they don't. And the people that are stable in their lives, the women that, that are around them, the women that are around them, their wives that are their anchors and their lovers that are their anchors are treated horrendously. And but also the only ones that seem like they're of any sort of sympathy whatsoever. And Cassavetes and, and Paul Falk play this so well. And and obviously it's obvious that they're friends. It's obvious that they trust May and May trust them. And so this whole thing feels so improvisational when it's not. I mean it's all written there. Right. I mean, did you did you see, I don't know, um on the on the Blu-ray there's some extras and some interviews with people and and I think it's Schlossinger. I think that's his last name. The the kind of producer mm-hmm. and the guy that's been with all of these people. He kind of comes up in all of these films. I think it was him who was saying, look, all of this was written. Every word they said was written. But the way they delivered it, the way that they were physically around each other, the way that they looked, you know, the way they moved, that was all kind of improv. And that goes back to May just letting the camera go and letting them just, and I know that like, you know, that's a point of controversy or whatever, but that's how she got her. So the, the scene where Falk comes back from the diner with the cream and he's running and he, he slips, he's not supposed to slip, right? but they just kept going. And I think that that's brilliant because that works so much better than if he hadn't had tripped, right. right? There's an anecdote on this movie about 
made basically she went through like five dps on this film oh yeah and and so there's an anecdote about one night they were shooting and falk went off to go and talk to somebody else and cassavetes went back to his trailer for a minute and the dp called cut and may just lost it and she's like only the director gets to call cut you don't call cut and he's like yeah, but they're not in the scene anymore. The, the actors have left. And she's like, yeah, but they might come back. <laughs> so this is, <laughs> on one hand, this is hilarious and funny. On the other, it's another instance of how she's bullied on these movies by men. Right. And, and this is this is something I thought I'd come to later, but I'm going to touch on, on at least this part of it now. But throughout these first three films, she is bullied by men all the time. So you have the instance with New Leaf where they take the film away from her. Robert Evans is going to do the cut and stuff. You also have the instance where during kind of the the court case, Mathau didn't stick up for her at all. Mathau was like, yeah, she couldn't handle all three of these things. And I'm like, really? Because the movie's pretty good. So, and she's pretty good as an actor. So look at the heartbreak kid. And did we talk about like the Neil Simon thing? A little bit about how he had the clause in his contract and he didn't come back after a while. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Because she was like, okay, he was like, you know, the clause was that you couldn't change his words. And so he'd come to set every day and she's like, well, we'll try it your way. Then we'll try it my way and we'll see which works best. And eventually he just stopped coming to the set. But again, that's another act of sort of like physical intimidation. And then you have, you know, an instance like that where this camera worker, this DP, he's going to take it upon himself to yell cut when the director has to be close enough. It's just, it's ridiculous. And it's, and, and there's more with, with Ishtar and stuff, which we'll save until we get to Ishtar. (laughs) (laughs) But I just find it incredible that no one would do this to a male director. I mean, I'm convinced, right? No one would do this to a male director. It wouldn't, they wouldn't stand for it. They'd be fired. They'd be gone. And it's this weird balance of like, I'm surprised of how much she actually got away with and by her own audacity and and tenacity and, and just self-assurance. It just seems like at some point the studio would have just stomped her out. But it, and, and the fact that she gets another chance on Ishtar, although I, I, when I say another chance, really, it, I don't know how great of a chance it actually was. Right, right. But again, I, I, I mean, I keep thinking like if this had been, if this had been a film that like Alan Arkin directed, mm-hmm. or you know, these three films, and he did all the same stuff, I don't think we'd be calling him, you know, difficult or, or he's or, got a reputation. Or uncompromising. Or, or uncompromising. I mean, I think this is language kind of reserved for an Elaine May type person. And, you know, okay, so I'm jumping forward a little bit. You know, when the studio was sort of hesitant to hire Elaine May for Ishtar, part of it was like, well, you know, the only people that shoot more footage than her are Kubrick and Warren Beatty. But they would never sort of think like, oh, we can't hire those guys. Right, right. So it's it's that kind of idea where it's like, okay, sure, did she help herself? Probably not. But how was she ever going to? Because she was going to have to push back all the time. She was going to have to somehow assert dominance to make her films, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think the only thing that I would had wished she had done was to be able to play in the sandbox a little bit better. Not necessarily yeah. from a from a filming perspective, but it, but specifically from an editing perspective and putting this all together. 
I don't think she did herself. I, I think the improvisational nature of her work and waiting for that. This is how this works, right? Where you never stop rolling. You you always are looking for good ideas and and you're always letting the next beat play out because the gold may exist right on the net on the horizon and you don't want to you don't want to squash it. It's always, you know, yes. And right. I mean, it's that the, the improvisational yeah. nature of all of it. Yeah. I wish that she could have gotten I wish she had been a tighter editor and, yeah. and fit in those times, because I think if that had happened and her films had to come out when they were supposed to have come out. And, and had she have not shot so much footage where she had to go one point four million feet. <laughs> Which is more than gone with the fucking wind. This idea, this idea of waiting for the next kind of like perfect thing. You know, it, do, you, do you know the anecdote between Hoffman and Beatty? Uh, this was on the set of Ishtar. Mm. And, and Hoffman's trying to have a conversation with Beatty. And uh, a, a woman walks by mostly covered but it's still a female figure and Beatty just loses all track of Hoffman and just watches this woman and Hoffman goes okay hang on wait a second he's like we're, we're, we're mired in all this shit your girlfriend's right over there but you're staring at this woman he's like let me ask you something theoretically is there any woman that you wouldn't sleep I mean because he pretty much slept with every single woman <laughs> in the universe but he's like you know theoretically is there any woman that you wouldn't sleep with and he's like what do you mean he's like just if there's a woman, would you sleep with her theoretically? And he's like, well, yeah. And Hoffman goes, okay, why? And he goes, he just never know. <laughs> but it's the same. Right. I mean, right. I mean yeah. I'm making that connection between this whole kind of improv thing. Look, you keep the camera rolling because you just never know. You don't turn down opportunities when they come. You never know when the next one will be there. <laughs> that was from um, the biography Star by Peter Siskin, which I will bring up again later. But I wanted to, I mean, that connection there makes sense and how you never know. So you just keep going. Right. Right. And, and I get it when you're dealing with actors who are also good at that, which Falk yeah. and Cassavetes yes. were. Yes. And, and so and there's so much that. You feel like even though it was written, you feel like there's got to there had to have been takes when they get to oh, sure. when they get to Cassavetes, um, when they get to to Nikki's mom's grave. And he's like, now that I'm here, I don't know, I don't know what, what to, say. to say. I don't know what to do. <laughs> it, it's so funny. These, this, 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 this whole movie is just a slice of life, a day in the night of these men. And 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 take away all of the other trappings, the the mob and and the the you know the the assassination and just on these two men kind of walking through Philadelphia the night the streets of Philadelphia at night together and it's all just so it's all if you didn't have them they were just mo they weren't mobsters if you took away the Ned Beatty character whatsoever this would still be a wildly entertaining yeah. movie yeah where they go to the bar they go to the movies they go to the you know his his prostitute lover's house or yeah. you know, and and they go to the <laughs> the graveyard <clears throat> and then they end up back at Mikey's house it, it, it's it it, it would be a great movie just as, as yeah. of that. But we're gifted with Ned Beatty and so. <laughs> his assassination character. <laughs> Which Mikey is in on. Mikey is helping to set Nikki up. Right. right. For the first hour, it's a is he, isn't he kind of yeah. thing. There's a kind of a cat and mouse. But also the whole thing, that all plays into that these two men aren't really friends. Or they used to be. And then as like Mikey, or as, as Mikey says... I don't want to do it anymore. Well, well, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Nikki says we're friends because we know we were we know all the things we used to do when we were kids, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that's, we knew each other when we were kids, essentially. Yeah. Right, and, and 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 Mikey's like, no, I knew I knew what I wanted. I knew what I, Mike, Mikey kind of pushes back against that eventually. Well, you know, and, then, it, and he and he says like, 
we're not friends now. Like you don't even know me. When other people are around, you don't even know me. Right. You make he, jokes he accuses, about He me. accuses him of, of calling him only when he's, you know, in need essentially. Yeah, and, and he has a nickname for him. And, and <laughs> right. I, I do love the joke of when he walked over to the table <laughs> to say hi to Nikki. And as he walks by, Nikki's like, wait, call that guy back. I didn't give him my order. <laughs> These are the kind of friends, at least on one end, right, where they just shit on each other. They just, they, they make jokes about each other. They're mean to each other. And again, I think it's more one-sided. Right. Nikki's clear. I'm not sorry, Nikki. See, uh, no, Nikki is right. See, and yeah. I fucked it up because I was thinking, because <laughs> I want to say Mickey and Nikki. <laughs> Nikki is clearly the, the the worst of the two characters. Yeah. He's He is racist and he is... Uh, uh, belligerent and and yeah there's i mean like there's one really really uncomfortable scene when they're in a bar kind of hiding out and nikki can't help himself he sees two men and he starts talking to one of their their ladies and it's a black bar and it's a black it's it's full of black it's a prominent black bar and he just starts to 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 bow up to this guy and i forget calls him a black man or call i forget exactly yeah he makes some comment and 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 they're trying to be nice and like i think they try to understand who these men are to, well, they think they're fair. cops. Oh, do they think they're because cops they're in suits and ties true, and they're and they're, and they're white? But but yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same. I, you know, really, cops and gangsters. <laughs> there's a fine line. There's a fine line, and I've been watching some Yakuza films lately, and so there's also those. I mean, <laughs> those are really close related too. But yeah, yeah, I mean, these guys are like, look, just get your because they they get Mikey like, just get him out of here, just go, just go. We don't want any trouble. We don't want any trouble. <laughs> Mikey's like, what the fuck? He leave you alone for like five minutes, right? And there's no reason to start a fight there. Those guys weren't weren't <laughs> trying to pick a fight with him. No, he just saw two men and decided to take a chance. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably what he's done his entire life. I have had friends like Nick. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Now, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't go so far as to like set them up with a hitman, but y- you've had friends or you have friends where you're out with them and you're like, oh shit. Okay. This again, now I got to go sort of step in and I might get my ass kicked for all this. Okay, cool. Ned Beatty's character is great. This kind of like inept hitman who <laughs> Beatty clearly is not from Philadelphia. <laughs> No, he gets lost. He gets lost. Can't find parking. He's going the wrong way. But I love that Beatty requested that his pants were, were short and get tailored shorter so that this guy looks even schlubbier than he does. It's 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 a nice touch. And I think that's another part of this film that like they all understand sort of the people that they're playing and like ways to make them like just like that much more. I don't know. Realistic, believable, yeah. add that much more texture to all of it. Yeah, Beatty's line about I did I took this job because I thought it would be the easy one, and I'm not ma- by, by the time I get done with with meals and hotel rooms, I'm not going to make any money. Bones. <laughs> I love it. it's great. He's telling he's telling Mike this in the car, like you just complain, like. But it's it. This is the other thing. Like these are not like high end mobsters. These are not the people that we are accustomed to seeing in. Or you won't see him again until good films, films, essentially. Right, and Donnie Brasco. Right, right. Yeah, Donnie Brasco is a, a, a good one, I think. I mean, Goodfellas is still a little kind of elevated and sure. like stylized, but Donnie Brasco, you see, like, you know, guys banging on a on a, a parking meter trying to get the nickels yeah, out, kind of. Yeah, thing. yeah, because they gotta they gotta bring stuff in, right? They gotta, they gotta produce. They gotta earn. Yeah, is Mikey in on it or not? Yeah, is right. he Nikki? It's a tenuous relationship throughout the entire thing. Nikki still suspects that Mikey might be in on it, and just knowing the nature of the mob. When they go out of the hotel room, they make him, um, Nikki makes Mikey oh, and Nikki switch, switch coats. coats with one another, and so you're kind of led to believe as 
Ned Beatty is coming in, it starts to make more and more, it starts to become more and more clear that that Mikey is in on the hit. He starts making phone calls, letting the, letting the hitman know where they're going to be. They end up going to this movie house um, and then they end up, but they end up leaving it early and, and, the, and the hitman gets there late. And so they go to a, they go to a movie house, they go to they go to a girlfriend of Nikki's to kind of lay low and, and to get Nikki laid. That's and a to, tough scene. And to really kind of denigrate. This is a really good scene of how and, and May frames this. So but Nikki is is trying to basically make put Mikey in his place in this sense. Also his girlfriend as well. But he's. Kind of, he, this you get the the idea that this happens a lot when they're together. That that Mikey's always playing second fiddle to, to Nikki mm-hmm. and to Nikki's mm-hmm. whims, and so they go up to um, this woman that that Nikki is sleeping with. And this is the girl on the side that he keeps and he kind of pout, it pushes out to his friends when he wants to. And the idea is that both Mickey and Mikey are, or Nikki and Mikey are going to sleep with this girl and, and Nikki's going to get first dibs. She starts talking about some political strife in Indochina and they just make fun of her. And like, I didn't know you were political. I didn't know. And like, and, and they have this really awkward lovemaking scene um, between Nikki and the girl and it's a wide shot and you see Mikey in the background in the kitchen kind of and he's just sitting there on a chair like in the corner in the corner just at kind of in a silhouette and everything is like and it's just this really gross like uneasy yeah. and then <clears throat> Nikki is finished tells Mikey to go yeah. you know to have his turn and the girl doesn't want to have anything to do with it Mikey really doesn't want to have anything to do with it these are both two also married men and it, it, it doesn't it doesn't end up happening mm-hmm. um Nikki but, ends up roughing her up a little bit. Like it, um, yeah. it, it just turns ugly and then they end up leaving. But and, and, and Mikey lashes out cause he's embarrassed. I mean, essentially, right. right. He, he, you're right. He doesn't want to go through it, but he's kind of like, okay, I have to, because like, this is what we do as men. Right. Right. I mean, these, these are very toxic men in, in, in all kinds of ways, but he's like, yeah, this is, I have to go through it. This is what we do. But he's more, he's more upset about being embarrassed, but it's such a great, the way that she does that, where, the room, the kind of living room is dark. The kitchen is lit and you can see the silhouette of them kind of on the floor and, and Peter Falk, and Peter Falk know, in the Mikey in the background. Away. Yeah. She does, she doesn't pull out a lot of tricks, but when she does, they're really, really well done. Like that scene, the the first scene in the bar where we get close-ups of Peter Falk and Cassavetes kind of going back and forth and all the things they say with just their facial expressions and their eyes. But a similar thing she did in The Heartbreak Kid, right? And the diner right. scene there where Jeannie Berlin has egg salad all over her face and Groden's like, what the fuck is this? And then in New Leaf where they're at the restaurant and she shoots them through the mirror where we see sort of like the side of one person's head and then we see the other person reflected in the mirror and then she reverses it. So she do, she'll do this like occasionally, but it not very often when she does it really stands out and I think it's really effective. Yeah, and I think one of the, the digs on this movie, especially from some of the critics, was that it didn't have some sort of distinctive cinematic flair to it, which I think is a completely wrong take, to be honest. Because it, it's, it's really the way that... When they're on the street, when they're out on the street and the way the camera moves with them, it's kinetic, it's energetic. This is where it's Cassavetes, like at mm-hmm. its kind of most. And this is like a Cassavetes revision, right? This is a Cassavetes film through the through the eyes of a woman. This is what Cassavetes men look like to us, right? Right. right. But the but the camera, the way it moves and the way it just follows and the way it just keeps going. And then at the end, when Peter Falk and his wife are in their house and it just stops. And then it's just like, it's a static camera and it just is with them. I think it's really 
purposeful, like how she's doing that. And I, I, I find myself like losing myself in the plot and like timeline of how it all happens. Like, but when exactly they go to the cinema and when they go to the cemetery, eventually it all breaks out where um, Mickey and uh, Mikey and Mikey have this falling out. <laughs> See, I told you I do this shit the entire time. They had this falling out. Uh, Nikki breaks Mikey's watch, his dad's watch. He's been had on for 20 years um, and is just and uh, as <laughs> as Mikey's picking it up off the street, Nikki's like, hey, do you have the time? fucking brilliant lines <laughs> it's so mean but it's, <laughs> but it's so in character because that's exactly and he also says oh did is it broken is it working is it stuck and, he's and, like, you know, and, and that's when mickey's like i you know i'm done i can't do this I and that's when he teams up and when he finally catches back up with ned Beatty, and they and even then and 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 nikki at that point realizes he's gone too far he, he finally he realizes that he's pushed him too far and now he really is truly has no one he's on his own he can't go back to his wife he can't go back to his girlfriend they want nothing to do yeah. with him now mikey is only quote unquote friend has been wants something to do with him so now we shift focus to mikey and ned Beatty, the, the assassin together and again, it's it, it, even then Mikey has trouble hunting down Nikki and eventually it culminates at Mikey's house with his wife. They're they're holed up in their house. Uh, Nikki comes to the house and the assassin comes to the house to shoot down Nikki. And, and that's that's basically it. And there's your spoiler in a, in a very, very harrowing yeah, for a 1977 movie uh, in a very harrowing scene where where essentially Nikki is begging and pleading and trying and to break down the door, door. And, and and just not only like begging for his own life but begging for forgiveness and hopefully that is that his friend Nick Mickey will come back around and open the door and, and help him out and he doesn't and it's just it's and that's basically roll credits yeah in fact they push couches up against the door to keep it the last words in that film from Peter Falk are to his wife would you go to bed <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> I mean this is a this is a film about I mean, platonic divorce, right? It's about two friends breaking up, right? two two men that have been friends for, for quote unquote friends forever, and they're just done. This is it. And that kind of murder scene is that culmination of the divorce proceedings. I mean, as far as metaphor goes, and and like you said, it's another one of these films that were shown, were given a mirror to the men of these movies that that they were and otherwise they would be championed characters in the film yeah you're given like and i know arthur comes out later but and i, I don't i have nothing to compare a new leaf to really but if you look at it from that perspective arthur is this scamp he's just this rich little scamp and we're gonna and he doesn't have murderous intentions but all you want but he but he's an empty shell of a human yeah. being who's only loved by his his gentleman's gentleman heartbreak kid is the graduate shown from the other side of Benjamin Braddock is a piece of shit. Yes. Yeah. He is a self-centered, horrific piece of shit. Yet we, because he's funny and it's written by Buck Henry, and we find ourselves enamored with this scamp. Mm-hmm. And then you get these other movies where, you know, you you look at The Godfather and, and other films where you're showing, you know, even Donnie Brasco, right? Where you're still in love with these gangster characters. These guys are pieces of shit. You don't, and even like the promotional poster. Mikey and Nikki, you're not going to like them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. And I don't think, I don't think, I don't think we would know what to do with these movies today. I certainly know we didn't know what to do with these movies in the seventies. And the the fact that they're so good and that she was able to pull this off is so, so very incredible. And it goes, it falls into Ishtar as well. Right. I mean, it's not. Oh, a hundred percent. But, but it's this, this subversiveness that she was able to pull off and able to basically keep control over and put these movies out. And the fact that they are as good 
as they are, it, it's, it really, again, <laughs> I don't know how many times we have to say it, go watch Elaine May films and, and tell your friends about them because there needs to be, if we're talking about renaissances for anyone, there needs yeah. to be a reassessment of yeah. her movies. Oh yeah. And, and this was the, fir- this was the first film that she wrote uh, piece. I mean, whole, whole, right. Home, right? I mean, this, this is, been... this is not source. This is not like previous like source material. This, and this is based off of people that she knew growing up, right? Her family had loose connections in the neighborhood. She knew people like this. She knew these kind of small time mobsters. So this was coming from sort of direct experience, but yeah, this was, this was her original story. And yeah, she wrote this since like 67, I think. Yeah. She'd been working on it and apparently had talked to, I don't know, either Falk or Cassavetes first about it. And then um, they saw each other at a Lakers game. And and one of them said, hey, Elaine May is doing this film. You want to be in it? Yeah, cool. And that's how they kind of got there. Um, I think initially Groden was up for part of it. I think he was in for Falk's role. Was he or was he in for Nikki's role? And then Falk was like, he was too mean or oh, something. Oh, maybe. I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> I, but there's some anecdote there about like Groden being a little too, a little too mean. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I can see yeah. Groden not really knowing how to play this role. Either one of them. It, like he's, he's too, too sardonic. Dry, right? Yeah. He? He's yeah. just, yeah, I don't think he could do, but these two guys are so good in this film. Well, and, and uh, you know, the playful scenes when they're together, when they're in the bus together and you, there's clearly a camaraderie, right? There's clearly something that they shared at one point and they're just making each other laugh and, and and getting along and 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 Cassavetes's meanness where he goes back and the lady's like I don't want to deal with your type and he's like oh our type huh he's I'll like, show you my type <laughs> <laughs> and then he then he gets into a fight with Emmett Walsh the bus driver um and like tells him to step outside because he wants to exit the front door of the bus and like oh yeah I'll, I'll fight you but you got to go out the back he's like sure but open this open the door so the lady can get <laughs> so in and, the they, <laughs> <laughs> and they all has there's there's so much fun between those two characters even though you know that there's, and that's, I guess it's just the whole backdrop of like one of them is trying to kill the other one, but there's still these moments of like, man, I, yeah, this guy, this when when he's, when he's good, he's good. And when he's bad, he's the worst. Yeah. He's he's diesel. And, and and unfortunately he's not good that often. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So yeah, uh, Criterion Channel, um, go go definitely check it out. It's one of those movies that, like, I I had, I'd obviously seen it before, and then I watched it again for this, and I was like, I, I want to watch this like right before we start because it's there's so much there's so much depth to it, and I get it's it's a film that just it's one it's easy to pop in and out of, um, but and you just don't necessarily even want to do that. It it's so like tense and wonderful and like I don't know it, it, it I, it's one of those things I just I kind of want to live in that environment because I I find myself like as I start to take take a step back and watch other things I start oh shit I need to remember this or that I want to yeah. talk because it's so it's so dense like you there's just too much to talk about like you're gonna miss something yeah. and we're not I mean we could have done a, an entire two hours on just it, that it's one of those there. you know talking about the films that that um have been remade specifically Heartbreak Kid it's it's funny to me that someone hasn't taken a chance at at, at Mikey and Nikki again because it's such a two-hander and it's such a it's such a like it one like it almost lends itself to like a broadway adaption i mean i know that she wrote it as a stage play to begin with yeah and then but it would be i think it would be cool to see this updated i don't necessarily maybe not because it goes can go either way but it's surprising to me that no one's trying to take a chance this especially as the scorsese 90s era of gangster and the donnie brasco era of gangster coming back to that story seems like it's would be inevitable it does i i worry that that it would be too slick if done. Sure. Now. And I think you know that's one thing that this film isn't to its credit, which is why I think 
at least I always make this connection to Cassavetes is that it has that grittiness. It has that kind of lo-fi kind of on location, you know, verite kind of quality. And it also has these just like quick cuts from scene to scene because right. the continuity, I mean, look, it's not that there's not a timeline, but there's no real transition and it's just cut, go, cut, go, right. cut, go. I mean, in Ned, Ned Beatty's character, the hitman is really just there to propel help propel the plot. Right. You know, right. Help, help, you know, cut some other scenes. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess if you look at the other film of this type that did try to get remade, which was Cassavetes Gloria, I guess you yeah. don't, that's not as successful. <laughs> right. Right. And, 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 and that's, that's exactly what you're talking about as far as the slickness of, of a Hollywood remake at this point is trying to put a big name in this role. And let's and, put some dramatic music in there. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm just surprised no one's tried it. Yeah, because it does seem like such a um, such material that would be uh, ripe for at least giving it a shot, and and relatively low barrier to entry to to do something like this, especially these days with the with the lower cost of filmmaking. You don't have to. I mean, you could film forever and not have to worry about actual <laughs> celluloid. Right. Well, and even I mean, even somebody like I'm just thinking of stylistically like a Sean Baker, right, mm-hmm. shooting stuff on an iPhone. And that kind of grittiness that comes out of that too. Anyway, anyway, I think we're getting getting off like topic. <laughs> let's get back on topic and let's talk about Ishtar, the film that's not as bad as you think it is, but it's still pretty bad. Three, two, three, four, four, two, three, and these men are pawns. I put a price of 20,000 dirham on their heads. Next, they will be hailed as the two messenger of God. They were just a couple of songwriters who came to Ishtar to break into show business. Easy boy, easy boy. Easy boy. What the hell's the matter with him? Is he blind? Well, yeah, he is, but he's in perfect condition. So how do they wind up? on everyone's hit list. Your life is in danger. Behave normally. We have a guns pointed at your back. No, don't put your hands up, you idiot. I can't believe these men may control the fate of the Middle East. Do it. This is unbelievable. Are the two American messengers of God dead yet? This is the oasis. Does this look like an oasis to you? Yeah, look at the birds. Are those vultures? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's aiming at it. Will you stop me? Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, Isabella Johnny. Your girl! How did she get to be your girl? I think they're wonderful. Ishtar, written and directed by Elaine May. (laughs) (laughs) This is some of our best work. Yeah, um, and and I have the unenviable task of, of <laughs> look, fucking look. Of, this can be look. I don't know how you summarize this film. I don't know how because frankly, I, it makes no fucking sense. <laughs> I've I'm sorry, watched it, sorry. I've watched it a few times, and I it's this is like 
trading places to me. Every time I watch it, <clears throat> I get confused by yes. how what the how uh, what the machinations of what are we doing with the orange features? <laughs> right. Well, how does this all work again? I gotta like take fucking notes. I gotta like put it, I gotta get a calculator out and like a slide rule. I'm like I'm whiteboarding it out. I'm like trying to, okay, here we You're go. You're overlaying the map of the Middle East with, <laughs> with a star chart. Okay, so Ishtar is so we open up and I I do this differently. So it's about yeah. two two failed singers in in New York City, uh, Hoffman and Beatty, uh, Clark and Rogers, Rogers and Clark, right? Yeah. And, and so these guys are a lifetime losers. They 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 work menial jobs. One is an ice cream man. One is a a, a piano man at a, at a restaurant. And they're trying to get their big break. And they're convinced that they're talented um, singers and songwriters. And they think that all they really need is an agent. We open up, the movie opens up with an archaeological dig in Ishtar, where these uh, where uh, where a map is found, it's supposed to be a a, a scroll that that predicts these two saviors coming into Ishtar and liberating all of the people from this fascist dictator that is currently in the country. Um, some leftists get a hold of that map and they're going to be, well, no, so I take that back. So basically there's a struggle over the map in Ishtar because whoever owns that map will be able to then get the loyalties of the leftist group. Am I keeping you here so far? (laughs) So cut, cut back to New York and these, we, we follow these two singer songwriters, um, basically up to an open mic night. And after we see them, after we see them lose the, their ladies in their lives and, and they're essentially they've got nothing left. One of them, Warren Beatty tries to uh, is about to commit suicide. They go to an open mic night. This may, the suicide may have happened after the open Hoffman mic night. Hoffman tries to commit. Yeah, it's Hoffman who's going to commit suicide. You sure? Yeah. Oh, that's Hoffman's right. Hoffman's on, yes, Hoffman on the ledge right. and he calls, don't call the cop. Don't tell them I'm on the ledge. <laughs> but does that happen after the open mic night? Or yeah. Okay. So. Uh, well, no. So because there's a flashback. Okay. And that's in the flashback. Oh, there's this okay. like, I may have missed that then. It's this weird fucking flash. So they're at an open mic night. They're I'm agent, not good at watching. That's okay. <laughs> Their agent comes and, and after watching these guys twice, the agent's like, you guys suck. You're old. You're terrible. And they're like, right. He's, we like, just need he's a like, gig. He's like, look, you need to, what you need to do is sing movies that everybody knows, which yes. is a great fuck you to Hollywood. Like yeah. it's all, this is great. Song. Like Elaine May. <laughs> it's line. So good. But he's like, I can get you this gig in Honduras. Or I can get you this gig in Marrakesh as lounge singers. And and Hoffman's like, oh, I need to think about it. And they go to a bar. for like ridiculously low pay, like, like, like 95 bucks a week. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, in Morocco, it's 95 bucks a week and it's 75 in Honduras, right? And But the, both acts, <laughs> the act in Marrakech left because, you know, they were afraid of political unrest. <laughs> so they go to this bar. Well, Hoffman's like, I need to be alone. He goes to this bar and then Baby he walks the in. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, it's only bar open. <laughs> so then the bartender's like, you guys know each other? And then... We get a close up on Beatty and and we get the flashback and then we get all that like how they met and then right. that that suicide or attempted suicide scene. And what's great about the suicide scene is how Beatty talks Hoffman off the ledge is essentially saying, "Am I am I ruining something?" No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I love I love this line. Like, I love this line. I got I really excited. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm gonna mangle the line. So if you have it exactly, that's it's great. But it basically tells him, it's like, you know how how daring it is to have nothing at, at this stage in your life it's like it would ruin most people <laughs> like it really like the fact that you're still here is impressive you have absolutely nothing going on in your life and that you're still getting up go ahead and read the actual it takes line. a lot of nerve to have nothing at your age <laughs> which is a great way to pull someone off, of, off a ledge to... and, but often goes you mean it really <laughs> Look, I think I think that is one of the few times the humor works in this film. 
Because <laughs> a lot of the other lines just fucking fall flat. Sorry. I, yeah, we can get into yeah. it. Yeah. So, so basically realizing that they are, they're completely broke. They have no love lives at this point because both of the women that um, have that were with them have finally fall, you know, decided they're not worth it. They decide to take the, the, the trip to Morocco. They try to take the job in Morocco. And on the way to Morocco, they stop in Ishtar. And when they're in Ishtar, Isabella, Isabella Ajani comes up to Warren Beatty. She's the leader. Hoffman. Sorry. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> She's the leader of the left. So she comes up to Hoffman and basically says, I need your passport and I need your bag. Um, I've got to get, you know, I, and it basically kind of gets him into some sort of bizarre intrigue. And she says that she only needs it for a short period of time so she can get some stuff out of the country and that she'll meet him back at her hotel later on or his hotel later on that night to give him his passport back so he can get to Morocco and get to his gig. Turns out that doesn't doesn't happen. And so um, he basically tells Warren Beatty to go on to Morocco with Adam so they don't lose the gig. So Beatty goes to Morocco. Hoffman stays in Ishtar and meets up with a CIA agent played by Charles Grodin, who convinces him to be a mule for the CIA or a mole, not a mule, a mule, a mole for the CIA. Because it could in, be the same. Right. Yeah. Because he's involved with the leftist group. And so that allows him and and. Hoffman takes the gig so he can get a, a temporary passport so he can get to Morocco so he can get his gig. And then it's this bizarre, like, cold world espionage plot once they get to Morocco in that the CIA is trying to keep the fascist regime in power. But there's also Turkish people there and Russians and Chinese people there. So the the political intrigue is it's funny but it is completely confusing. At, and the CIA agent and uh, Johnny, the leftist leader, start to turn and, and, and create some suspicion amongst Beatty and Hoffman against one another. Um, I could never really figure out why Beatty buys the blind camel. A Johnny sneaks into his hotel room. To steal his bag. Right, which because, is, because she, she switched the bags, right? right? Um, because it's her brother that had the map and he was going to send it to her. And so Beatty has that stuff. And so she goes in there to try and get it. And they get in sort of like to a tussle. Right. And he thinks he's a boy. It's a really well, funny scene where he thinks that she's a boy. Yeah. And he's, Who's breast? And, and he's, he won't let go of her boobs. <laughs> what are you serious? <laughs> um, which she in no way looks like a boy. No, not really. I mean, so she's supposed to be like disguised and, and, as a boy. And I'm like. And she was supposed She's to like lower too, her voice, yeah. but she wouldn't do that. And that right. was like how Beatty kept squeezing her. <laughs> well, and that's like her and May got fell out over that fact. Is that because she wouldn't wouldn't do what May was asking her to do to lower yeah. her voice? Anyway, um, that's another just a side but, note. So. So she says to she explains everything to Beatty and she's like, look, but also go. Hoffman is now tied up with the CIA. Agent, right. So she thinks right. that he's acting against her. Yeah. And so so she's like, if you, you know, go go to this market, ask for Muhammad and tell him you want to buy a blind camel and he'll come get me and, w- and we can talk. So that's why he goes to buy the blind camel. But that, that's kind of a racist scene. It right? really Where is. Where he's like, Muhammad? I'm looking for Muhammad and like 12 guys turn around and I was like, oh boy. The line that Beatty <laughs> says is pretty funny afterwards. Where he's like, oh, you're the first guy I asked. What? Hit it out of the park in the first try. That's pretty funny. That's yes, funny. The, the, that's funny. The, yeah. There's a lot of like kind of tense moments, hmm. especially when dealing with 1980s version of Middle Eastern uh, yeah. culture. Um, especially, yeah. Especially when you get to the um, the the scene where Hoffman is pretending that he can speak Arabic, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that is just mm-hmm. basically um, 
uh, Rosie O'Donnell speaking Chinese <laughs> yeah, kind of stuff. It's, it's so that's that doesn't it's that doesn't not cool. Age well. Yeah, it does not age well at all. Uh, so uh, Beatty goes and buys the blind camel. Essentially, at this point. I, I think both the leftist group and the CIA agents are are done with the duo and they send them out to the desert to basically be killed. Mm-hmm. And th- when they get out to the desert, they stumble upon an arms dealer and they um, well, they, they go out to the desert and they realize they don't actually realize they've been duped. This pair is along the entire time doesn't really realize they have no idea of what's going on. So they get out to the desert. None of the the oasis that's been promised by the CIA agent and the glowing um, beads. Neither one of those are come to fruition. So they get stuck in the desert overnight. And yeah, this is Hansel and Gretel in like right. the witch's house. The the CIA agents are going to send a armed helicopter out to basically shoot them and kill them and make it look like the leftists have killed them. But luckily for Hoffman and Beatty, they stumble upon an arms dealer out in the desert. And they, when they, so when the helicopter comes, all of the people that were buying the arms and they start to do this like thing where they're auctioning off the, they're supposed to be speaking English and all the different dialects. Hoffman doesn't speak any of these. So he just does gibberish talk in a very racist way. But as the helicopter comes, all of the people that were buying arms run away. They're left with these arms of, to protect themselves at some point they realize that they actually do have the map that will sway the leftists or the or the locals to follow whichever regime has the map so the leftists come out and save them from the cia um they make it back to ishtar and marty feldman the agent comes back and blackmails the cia for the map in order for those guys to um, not only then support a communist uh, leftist regime to take over the fascists that the CIA wanted to keep into power, but also to back Roger and Clark's out al- debut live album from Morocco or from Ishtar. <laughs> and they become, they actually get the, the album that they want. And then we fade out after the concert's over where we see uh, their album for sale in the United States, but it is on clearance sale, you know, at, at a low, low price. <clears throat> If you're not following along, don't worry, because watching the movie, like it doesn't. It's a mess. It is it, it, like by the time it gets to, it, by the time it gets to Ishtar, there are some really funny scenes. Mm-hmm. But like, but the, the, the plot is so convoluted. So when they first get into when, when they both get to 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 Morocco and they're and they're sus- they're suspicious of one another and Beatty goes out and Hoffman goes to follow him and then you've got Turkish and CIA <laughs> and they're and like, they're, it's like there's three cars that are following him and they, as soon as one of them stops all the cars crashing in one another and all the guys that are following them crash into one another those are some there's some really like funny like Crosby Hope-esque slapstick things it this film does not know what it wants to be no. and I think that like it it, it just it doesn't get made without Beatty and Hoffman, but it does not work with them either. Not at all. And and I, I kept thinking, okay, how how could you make this movie better? And one, obviously, I think you spend significant more time in New York City. Yeah. You don't go like the the MacGuffin of the map and getting over into now. I you know I know that this American exceptionalism and American know nothingness was part of the themes that May was trying to get across, sure. and that. So I think that there's something to be said there about them getting over into the Middle East to, you know, kind of jumpstart their career. But I think you need more setup. And I I just think you need different people in those roles. I I think had you have gone with like Ackroyd and Chase or Ackroyd and (laughs) Martin or as somebody who has like, I just don't find either. Broden and De Niro. Right. I mean, maybe like, I don't know. I I mean, like somebody who was 
a, who could carry the the weight of of the humor a little bit better than those guys can outside of their star power, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I, I like the idea of Beatty being the bumbling one. Right. I agreed. But I think he does it better in movies like uh, Bullworth. I mean, like he eventually he finds himself where he's kind of self-deprecating after Madonna's Truth or Dare comes out and he realizes he's not really kind of the the Lothario that he that he once was. Right. Right. And and that he still thinks he is. Right. And he can and he, he seemingly has like a sense of humor about himself. But in this case. Like he's coming off of shampoo and like this huge like right. like like era of where he is. I mean, heaven can wait. He is this just this this god of like. I mean, like he is the the sex symbol of Hollywood at the particular point in time. I, but I never found those guys particularly funny in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Like the like they're good with good material. And they're great actors, but they're not funny. They're not comedic actors. I think had you've gone with somebody who was more established. I mean, like. Like, look at something where Robin Williams does with, and I know he's improvisational and probably would have been problematic, but in this role, in this particular point in time, I could think he would have killed it. And if you could have put him yeah. and you, he could have, he could have been the, I mean, he could have been either one of them. Yeah. He could have played it down and, and been the kind of like, like he did with Nathan Lane in the birdcage later on. You just needed someone who could carry the the humor. And there's pieces that, that really, really work when, when, when. Beatty's driving in the in the ice cream truck and all the kids are running behind him. And he's just like singing the chocolate love scene. That fucking kills me. The songs in this and one of the real tragedies <laughs> of this film, in my mind, is that it was so unsuccessful that they shelved the soundtrack. Oh. But I would love to have the soundtrack to this movie because the film, the songs are so funny. They are so good. The, the telling the t- truth, telling the truth is dangerous, dangerous business. Business is is so is so good. The the line of like life is our all of our auditions for God, and let's just pray that we all get the job. So, like, like there's not many. I mean, that's. That's a good fucking line. That song, yeah, that stuff kills me. Honest and popular. (laughs) Don't go hand in hand. Right. And, 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 (laughs) like... It, though, I mean, like, obviously, I mean, I'm not saying anything new here, but that that, that, that stuff is so telling, right? I mean, like, th- this is what May was, this is the whole point of this movie. Also, this idea of, like, these people that are just constantly struggling and never giving up. This and, is, and this is the kernel of the, of the movie that I think is so interesting and so, this is why it's so bad that it didn't, or so sad that it didn't work out. This idea that these two guys are not good at what they do, but they will never stop. Dude, there's something to be said for that. There's yeah. something to be said for the passion that these guys have. And I'm being serious. Something, something to be said for the passion these guys have, even if it's chasing mediocrity. They will never give up. And they're probably a lot happier than other people doing that, right? This is when they're in their kind of element. They're crawling through the desert and they're making up a song. And then later, and they're like, oh, it's too bad we don't have a pencil. Later on, they remember it and sing it together. See, we didn't need a pencil. That stuff is... That idea there is so, so good and something to build on, but there's really nothing else attached to it. Yeah. Well, I think it gets so convoluted in its espionage plot that it just, it just muddles it It down. It makes no sense. I mean, it just does. It's like they just completely like lost the point of it because those two guys don't, I mean, they're supposed to be sort of almost like prophets coming in, right? To usher in this map and they there's none of yeah. It th- just dis- it just goes away, and then you're like, it, "Why are we here?" It's it's. I get the road to Bali aspect right. of it all, right? All I the get whole that. Crosby, yeah, those movies, right? I mean, and but if you go and look at those movies, 
one and go and look at those movies because they're right, fun. Right, because they're <laughs> and, and those guys were so good together. What I think, I think that's part of it too. I don't necessarily think too huge. Like Hope was such the great, like I'm the less talented one and I'm the one who's going to take, I mean like, but also per- pushing it off with some bravado and knowing who he really was, but letting Bing Crosby be like the handsome singer dancer guy and me, the bumbling comedian, but also maybe kind of the brains of the bunch. Like you've, you've got Hoffman and you've got Beatty and, and it's, those are just two huge stars. There's who, who plays that role. Right. Right. And, and then, and then trying to shift it up and trying to play them against type is one thing. I just don't like they, they couldn't, like Groden could pull off the like maybe if you put Groden with something like you said Groden with De Niro well, like somebody I mean, right. but I know I know you're being yeah. facetious but where Groden could have been the the Beatty role and somebody else like uh, like if you'd done Robin Williams in, in, yeah. the, in the Hoffman yeah. role or vice versa whatever right. I think it's Gro- I mean Groden I mean that wouldn't be too far from Groden's character in the Heartbreak Kid he's right. not as smart as he thinks he is right he's not as smooth as he thinks in that kind of right work yeah I just it, this gets so. I, and I don't think May, the, of all the things that she is, at, at which she is good, I don't think this action, it, which obviously it never really devolves into an action movie, but these action scenes and the way that she's shooting these desert scenes really doesn't lend itself to her style. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where um, where uh, Hoffman and Groden are talking and Hoffman has the camel he sent Beatty off because Beatty's afraid he's afraid Beatty's going to be recognized so Beatty's going off to put his put um to put his headdress on and Groden just says to, to Hoffman like move the camel and he's like what are you talking about he's like move the camel right and he's like, pan down he's like it's on, on my, my foot, foot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know there's those things like that like that's silliness like it never it, it never it, it, it like it never commits right right it, it never commits to a road to Bali type humor and it never really then goes to some sort of like and it never like leans into its espionage plot either so you can't believe either one of them it's like caught in between everything right and this is i mean this is a moment where i think or this is one reason i think the humor doesn't work i think groden i think they're all they're all turning up they're all turned up to like 10 and a half on a scale of 11 where you know the reason the humor works in all those other movies is because it's quiet they're not cranking that up, right? Yeah, they're not never, winking, never a nod right? To the audience, and, right? And Beatty and Hoffman, I don't think, can do that. I think it's always like full kind of blast, especially with Beatty in this film, where he's just like, "Listen to my accent, right? I'm from I'm from down south," and and you're like, "But you're not," and like we can tell. And the in some of the jokes that Groen delivers, he does with this smirk <laughs> that yeah. he's just like, "You see what I'm doing, right?" And I love Groden, and I thought like in the Heartbreak Kid, he didn't have that smirk and if he did it was a different kind of smirk yeah there are there are moments there are a couple yeah there are a couple like the like the line about you know it takes nerve you know to have nothing at your yeah age. i'm putting love in my will like that that scene <laughs> is the piano scene where he's singing to the the, the couple who's on their but it's the music it's the music stuff that's funny right I know it sounds weird to say this about two people who aren't good at singing and aren't good at, I think someone who would have been slightly better at carrying a tune and, and yeah. if slightly more believable. But if you remember, well. they told their agent, we're songwriters. That's true. We don't want to be true. singers. We we're songwriters. They want to, they want to write and sell song. And then, you know, I mean, the agent goes, well, don't you think the beach boys are songwriters? And they're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, they, and I think that's, I, I mean, I agree with you. They probably should have been a little better. Right. And but you can, you can tell like Beatty does not, well, Beatty's character does not want to be on stage. He's so stiff and just kind of robotic <laughs> right. when he's up there. I, and see, I, I do love the scene where he's in Marrakesh by himself starting that gig. And he's like, tonight, 
we're going to do a catalog from Simon and Garfunkel. And no one says anything. He's like, yes, I love them too. Right. And he's just got this whole thing like memorized, this program that he's going to go off of. So just holler out your hits from Simon and Garfunkel. And of course, they're like, that's a moron. And he's like, oh, uh. <laughs> I think, you know, those are moments, but they're just so few and far between yeah these these moments of humor that actually kind of works in the movie and those are different movies yeah they really are you know i mean the funny part is like the lounge right if you had stayed in new york and i don't know what again i I think you try to do too much and you try to be too clever for your own good to us at a certain point right because these these are mickey and nikki as lounge singers or mickey and and mikey and nikki goddamn movie name wrong there's these are mikey and nikki as lounge singers right i mean like yeah maybe a little bit more of a, a tender friendship but if you stay in new york and you get carol kane and i forget the tess uh i forget her last name who plays the the, the love interest for warren Beatty, and you show more of that dynamic you show more of the th- of the themes of them building their friendship and like picking one another up tess harper tess harper thank you then picking each other up a- after failure after failure and then try to figure out some sort of espionage or some sort of like intrigue plot in the United States, even if it has to deal with Middle Eastern themes or something even along those lines. It's like a mob thing. Right. Right. I mean, I get the road to aspect, which but you got way too tied into the road to aspect. And yeah, you you completely lost it. Now, out of all of that being said, yeah, I don't believe this is a good movie. I don't. And, but I don't necessarily find it. Uh, obviously, it's not one of the worst movies ever no. made, and I don't actually find it an unenjoyable movie to watch no. just because of the things that are fun about it. Um, I do just find it when I'm sitting there watching it again, and I was I was sitting, there, I was watching it for this podcast, and I was just like, I still don't like I, this. <laughs> it falls apart because there's like again, there's four entities, and, and nothing is really all that well explained. And yeah, so the, it's like okay, there are funny bits in here, and when the when the military comes at the final end and they know that they've been like duped and they have to do this to to support this this concert album, and all the military guys are told to applaud and like it, and they think that they're a hit. I, there's a there's a, a beauty to that. I just it yeah, it's just a muddled mess. Yeah. But overall, I'd say it's entertaining to watch, and it's also one of those movies like it's one of those things where you I think you should watch it just so you can get the the idea of what actually happened to it. I mean, to me, you know, I grew up right around the, I was probably, I mean, I was preteen, right? Was this was coming out. There aren't many movies that had this much, like people wanted this to fail before it came out. Yeah. And I can only think of a couple of other times where this actually happened. I think it happened in Waterworld. I think it happened with, um, uh, what's the Ben Stiller, Jim Carrey, um, cable, cable guy? guy. And it happened with last action hero and Mikey and Nikki and Mikey and Nikki. Yeah. It happened to Lane May throughout her career. So, <laughs> but this like negative press and like, Oh, how can, how can this possibly be good? It's gone over budget. It's complete departure from what they've done in the past. And like people were predisposed to hate this even before it came out. And they were already thinking, well, okay, this is going to be the wor- one of the worst movies. So like, if you go into this movie thinking it's going to be one of the worst, well, now you're going to be kind of pleasantly surprised. Yeah. But going into this in 1987 and you're like, oh yeah, this, this is terrible. Also, this movie opens up, it opens up at number one, but it barely beats out the gate, which, right. which is a low budget horror film, a fun little horror film star- starring Steven Dorff. And then the next weekend, Beverly Hills it's, Cop 2 comes out yeah. and it gets obliterated and it's done. And it's, it's, it's done. And then it becomes a national, but it was a national punchline even before <clears throat> it came out. And Elaine Murray's career is over. That's it. And, yeah. yeah. And a lot of that is like all of the background. I mean, this this movie is more famous because of this, right? Because of 
the negative publicity before it came out and because of all the stuff happening on behind the scenes. Peter Siskin wrote this biography of Beatty called Star. And in 2010, Vanity Fair ran an excerpt from that book about about Ishtar called Madness in Morocco. And frankly, it's kind of a sexist, misogynistic piece. And it's almost like a hit job. Really? Wayne May. I mean, it is. Oh, okay. Look, I mean, I read it and I'm like, so everyone's just like, yeah, it was her fault. All of them. So Beatty takes no responsibility for getting involved in the editing room. Beatty takes no responsibility for well, Beatty, trying to be a white knight and like, oh, Elaine May needs me to like do this for her. I just, I mean, I find that kind of problematic to begin with. Sure. Right. That, that he's like, I'll have your back. And, and he goes to the studio and he's like, whatever she wants. Right. I'll do this. And I, but, it but just, he also then at, at a certain point requires every scene to be shot twice. Right. According to her and according to him, which obviously then balloons the cost of the film. Yeah. And, but see, and, and she's the only one destroyed from this. Right. Yeah. And so even the, there's no, the, look, the men were much more vocal about May than I think May was about these guys. I haven't heard a whole lot from her, at least not as with as much vitriol as the men have sort of, and, and Hoffman's kind of in the middle, right? right. Hoffman's sort of like, well, I played intermediary between everybody. I was trying to like keep the peace, but the cinematographer was like, she didn't know what she was doing. So I had to trick her. And I just find the way that they talk about this just terrible in that, in that, you know, Beatty went into like, the studio, oh, she can't direct. I was like, what do you mean she can't direct? You know, she can direct. Stop saying this shit. And then the guy, it was, it was Guy McCune, who was like the head of the Columbia. I think it was Columbia, right? Yeah. You know, he was like, well, I had lots of conversations with, with Elaine May about this, and she promised that she wasn't going to misbehave. And I'm like, you don't talk to, a, to a, again, like, you don't talk to a male director like this. Right. right? You, you, you just What's don't. misbehave mean? Right. Look, other people would be called meticulous. But, right. but they're not going to call her that. So, I mean, of course, look, she she probably should have been in touch with the editors more. I mean, there's all these stories about her, like not communicating with people, not telling people what she wants or having all these different ideas. But again, this was not a movie that lended itself to her style of improv, right? Her style of, no, no, let's just try this. Okay, I got a new idea, got a new idea. And especially with this cast. Right, right. It's one of those, like... <sighs> You, you would think, one, if this movie had to come out in Christmas time when it was supposed to come out, I don't think the vitriol would have been quite as loud. I don't think this is going to be a successful film no matter what you do. No. But if it comes, if it comes out on time, I think people go in and go, eh, all right. Didn't really work. But if you look at the other movies that would come out in like Christmas of 86, there wasn't like anybody in a huge blockbuster hit. There was like the Golden Child was like the big like. So, I mean, like there were these movies that were kind of middling in that era. I was thinking about this today and I don't want to go down this tangent necessarily. We can. We can come back to it. But like like thinking about the 70s and thinking about the 90s and then thinking about the movies of the 80s, like what really was like what's the defining besides John Hughes? What's defining of like the 80s? And the 80s was really kind of a dearth of like filmmaking. It was just like it was really no true like underground cinema and if there is it wasn't happening in the united states right put that aside put a pin in that i, I apologize for <laughs> completely <diverting laughs> that's a separate but had it come out and the studio then doesn't sandbag it so it found and then and, and it finally comes out in 87 it's also one of those things too okay so it didn't come out in 86 how long do you let elaine may like you already have it in the bag. I know it's cost a lot of money. I know you don't want to continue to put Elaine May up at some LA hotel with uh, editing equipment for the forever. But it makes you wonder, like, and I know that artists have eventually have to let go of things. But were she able to finally have access to all of the footage that she shot? What what comes out of right. that? Is there a better film that comes out of this? And because it was had to be, because at some point they just said stop. 
yeah. stop and we're going to release it. And, you know, you know, it, it got good. It, like it had good um, reviews, well, not reviews, but like good uh, test screenings. Uh, yeah. And they I think like, Beatty was like, this is the one of the best previews I've ever been part of. Right. And then, like I said, but so if it hadn't been sandbagged and people had gone in it with a B minus C plus reviews, I don't think we'd be talking about it anymore. Yeah. It would just be another film. But Elaine May would have made something else. I mean, right. Elaine May would have been able to show that she brought in a $40 million film. That granted, it wasn't supposed to be that much. It was supposed to be $25 million. But when you give Beatty and, and Hoffman $10 million off the top and you shoot in, and, and like it was all weird too. Like, oh, like, it's, it, like you read about studio interference and like uh, just the studio system at this particular point. It's fucking amazing that any film ever gets made. Right. Like Coca Cola was involved <clears throat> at one point. Because they owned all that. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and then they get out like two years later because it's the. We don't want to be in the business. Like, what do you think you and were look, getting into? You hear, you hear things like, well, Elaine May was looking for per, the perfect sand dunes. And then when she couldn't find them, she commissioned mm-hmm. someone to, uh, to flatten a, 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 a one square mile for a cost of $75,000. Okay. Yeah. But honestly, I, I, you know, I, I, and I think I know we, I talked about on the, the Gilliam podcast. It was like, I do think that there are directors that are better reined in. And so it may be a little unfair for me to say this about May, but I think the environment of these movies is that no one ever, ever questioned how much something cost. Right. Like there wasn't anybody ever going to, Hey, Elaine, this is going to cost $75,000 and maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should just go and shoot what we've got when you're already up against this particular, I mean, I don't know, but it seems to me like this was a production that had Hoffman, Beatty and May on it. And they were like, eh, What's ever going to come out? It's going to come out good, so we're cool. Yeah. And then what do you think is going to happen if you give someone carte blanche? They're going to keep... Right. And so could Elaine have played... Like I said, I wish she had played better in the sandbox. I wish she had have had the foresight about her career, which is not for me to say, obviously. But but I mean, from from a fan of wanting more output... It would have been great if she could have turned in movies on time and, and been a little bit more judicious <laughs> True, in her, in her yeah. editing so that her career, because I think if that had happened, you don't see quite the ballooning costs, but also you then the, I mean, at least they show, because at almost every juncture, a film has to be taken away from her and eventually released. Yeah. I don't, I don't know about the Heartbreak Kid, but I know for sure. I mean, obviously in the other three, they yeah. eventually just said, look, we've got to release this. We can't edit it forever. And so what are we doing? And so had she been able to deliver a final cut and not been, you know, and been able to compromise with herself on her vision a little bit, which ultimately ended up happening anyway, maybe we get more Lane May films, which is obviously I'm not trying to put blame on her. I'm just one of the wishes that I had. No, right, right. And I I think I think part of that is that, you know, with a new leap, she never really intended to do this. You know, Nichols went off explicitly to make films and Elaine May wrote plays, screenplays and, and that stuff. I mean, it was almost sort of like, she almost kind of backed in to the to the directing part. I mean, she she sold the script, she sold the screenplay, and then her agent got the deal to direct. And so we've talked about how she, you know, that first film, she didn't quite know. Right. Oh, I got to shoot coverage. What's coverage, right? <laughs> and so I mean, you can see how the editing probably got away from her too. Or she's like, I want to make it this way. I'm not quite sure how to do it, so I'm just going to keep going and going and going. And I think once somebody comes in once and takes your stuff away. You're going to hold on that much tighter. She had a clause in her contract for Mikey and Nikki that gave her final cut. Now, when I think 20th Century Fox had the film first and then dropped it and then Paramount came in, they yeah, they, she, they she ended up see. negating that clause. But I think that she's like, no, 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 this is mine and I want control here. And I so well, I, I think, think what that sticks. Yeah, I think what happened. I read something about like. 
Columbia was threatening to take it away, and she sold it to Fox Production Company. They bought it back. Oh, they bought it back. So, okay. so they took it away from her at the end, and and put this cut together that was shit. It was terrible. <laughs> Apparently, like, continuity was just like all messed up. And so she with and it's Schlossberg, Schlossberger. Anyway, <laughs> the three of them, Falk, Schlossberger, Schlossberger, Schlossberger fans are about to go, it's Schlossberger, motherfucker. I know. Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, don't you have this written down? It's like, I do, but now I can't find it when I need it. <laughs> so he put together like his own production company and then he, May, and Falk went and bought back the rights. And then she put the cut together and eventually like screened it at MoMA. It's like a retrospective. And now we have, you know, the. Blu-ray from 2019 and right. stuff. So um, that's how that worked out. I just, you know, I want I want to go back to this this quote that I said because I actually found the direct quote. Direct quote. But Siskin says something that I think is really bad. So he's talking about Guy McElwain, and he said, "I spent a lot of time with Elaine, and she assured me she would not misbehave." Unquote. And then this is Siskin's words: "This was like asking Amy Winehouse to go cold turkey." Fuck you. Exact. That was my. Exact point. So fuck you, Peter Siskin. <laughs> this was like asking. I mean, obviously that's a terrible that's a terrible analogy for for on both sides of it. But I mean like that's but also just fuck you. But but the whole article, that whole excerpt has that kind of tone. And so I just think that like the idea yeah. that she's this problematic director right. who right. who never knew how to like if the four films were just pieces of shit. Right? Which they're not. Which three of them are brilliant and one of them is okay. Yeah. And and one of them is okay and has brilliance just bubbling up underneath it. I'm, I'm gonna, I, I don't like Ishtar. I'm not going to come out and defend it. But like I said, I the one thing, the one lament is that if there was a soundtrack for for Ishtar, I would own that soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. I would love to hear those songs, especially as you know, as the end credits roll and you get the actual full orchestral production behind Dangerous <laughs> Business. It's Telling so much the fun. Truth yeah, it's is a bitter herb. <laughs> That's from the outtakes. <laughs> and and yeah, because I want to hear Beatty's chocolate love song. I just want to that. <laughs> Knishes that was and a really kisses and strawberry kisses and knishes. That and was a really good scene. <laughs> oh, oh well. Alas. I, and oh, yeah, well. so it, uh, I don't know. I don't have any other like final thoughts. I, I just, it's, it's. Yeah, no, I, I think we should just, we should I, give the people what they want. The end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we should give the people what they want, which is other movies to watch. Or if they like. If you like. Recommend it if you like. Did you want to start or did you want me to go to I'll, first? I'll start and I'll get the one out of the way that we already talked about that I told you not to bring up, but you already did. My first. Wait, I brought up the people that were in it. I didn't bring up the. Actual yeah, name but everyone knew. <laughs> did, did they? Yes. Everyone knew. <laughs> everyone knew. So my first recommended, if you like, and especially if you like or didn't like Ishtar is Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase, who play these two bumbling, idiotic government employees who think they're spies, but are really just rubes and pawns in like a Cold War game. This is another, I mean, this, this is closer to the Road 2 movies than than obviously Ishtar is. Yeah. And it yeah. plays with people who have comedic timing mm -hmm. and know how to play against mm -hmm. one another. Um, and all of the other people in the movie play it 100% straight. Yes, yes. Right, so yes. It, it's, I wouldn't say like Spies Like Us is a solid B minus. Right. I mean, it's not a great right. movie necessarily, but, and I don't, not to shit on your point, I'm not trying to shit on your God, choice. no shit, man. Wow. <laughs> I, look, go and watch it. I haven't seen it, but it, uh, I haven't seen it in a, in a minute, but um, it, it definitely knows how to play that, 
you know, uh, Crosby and Hope aspect more than more than than Ishtar. Does. But I didn't want to do the road to films because I'd be like, just go watch the road to movies with Bing Crosby and <laughs> right. I don't have, I don't I mean, have a road so, to either. <laughs> so, so I was trying to, to find road, something. Road to Bali is probably the closest out of yeah. all of them. And I, yeah. I have not seen all of them. I've just, I've yeah. read all of the, but I mean, these, are, these are themes and that's what May wanted to do, right? She wanted to make her own like road to movie. Anyway, spies like us is great. I love those two guys. Um, maybe less so now than I did when I was a kid and I didn't know anything like about Chevy chase or, Ackroyd subtle dig at the EPA and Ghostbusters because <laughs> right. the environment's important. So I still don't understand like, like the dig of the environmental protection agency. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I understand this man has no dick, but <laughs> it, it, you know, this Ishtar is being made the same time that three amigos is being made, which is another which movie is another. that's not that great and did not get great mm. reviews when it came out. But man, if you'd have put Martin and Short in the Beatty and Hoffman roles, see that would have that would have because those because again, yeah, you put Martin in the Hoffman role and and Short in the Beatty role. Man, I, yeah. that's a movie I'd, I'd want to see now, again. How do you, you know s- that's a male plane? <laughs> you can see Did his you see his balls. <laughs> 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 All right. Yeah. yeah okay. Spies like right. us. Yeah. I like Go it. watch it. Okay. Uh, my first recommended do you like is uh, American Buffalo, directed by mm-hmm. Michael Corrente. And it's a man mad film um, about it stars Dennis Franz and um, uh, Hoffman. Oh. And, and it's very man mad. You know, it's a it's a it's a two hander. Um, well, it's a three hander, actually. Um, but it's mostly Hoffman and Franz. They are it's about this uh, pawn shop owner who gets taken for a ride on a guy who who buys a rare coin off of him, but kind of uh, lowballs him. And Hoffman and Franz devise this plot of trying to get back at him. And then, it, but they're basically two lifelong losers as well. And, um, it, that, that movie doesn't quite like as a film, I would love to see it on the stage as a movie. I think it would have been better served had Mamet directed it. Cause it doesn't quite stick its ending. Um, it's, but I love watching Hoffman, like just eat up Mamet dialogue. It's so, so well done. He's, he's so good in it. But, but by the time you get to the end, I'm like, eh, I, I don't really love that movie, but I, but I do find it really intriguing to watch Hoffman do Manette. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. My next one is, um, and this is an easy one, but whatever. Husbands by yeah. John Cassavetes, 1970. Yeah. Um, I get Peter Falk stars, John Cassavetes stars alongside Ben Gazzara. And the story is that after the death of a common friend, these three married men spend a couple of days hanging out, drinking. They abandon their lives. They fly off to London. <laughs> Two of them come back. One doesn't. Um, I mean, again, like similar themes, you know, male friendship, midlife crisis, this kind of, you know, breakdown, this kind of like looking for you know, self-exploration, self-examination, that quest again for like truth and honesty and how that. Yeah, it plays so well with Mikey and Nikki, too, because what again, just talking about what May was able to do was to show the other side of these yeah. people that. I don't know if Cassavetes actually tapped into really either the, the the ugly side of all of these characters. And there are it, ugly moments in Husbands. Yeah, for sure, oh, for yeah. sure. But to really kind of lay bare Walter Matthau and Charles Grodin right. and these guys. Again, I don't think another man could, could though, right? No, 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 I don't think I so I think either. that's what's so, so great about, and this is, I mean, Mikey and Nikki next to Husbands, and you can see like the grittiness in both and how they're both kind of cut, 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 cut. I mean, because they're all like short vignettes, right? Right. I mean, and they just, and they all build up to something as a whole, but they're very similar and they're in like kinetic energy. 
I immediately went from Mikey and Nikki to husbands. I just like, <laughs> watched one right after the right. other. And I was like, oh, I'm such a sad man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my number two is She's the Lovely, which actually goes by She's So Lovely um, because they had to change it because Cole Porter sued. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, but She's the Lovely, which I will continue because when it got released, that's what it was called. She's the um, She's the Yeah. She's the lead. Sorry. Uh, no, no, please go on. Um, So this is a movie directed by Nick Cassavetes after John passed away. John wrote this movie. Stars Sean Penn, Robin Wright Penn, and John Travolta all in great turns. It's a movie that you're not going to like any of the characters, but basically Robin Wright Penn and Sean Penn are in this kind of kind of a husbands and Mickey or uh, Mikey and Nikki like type lifestyle where they're, you know, they're low level hustlers um, live in bars. Uh, Sean Penn has a mental illness and Robin White Penn gets into an altercation with James Gandolfini, a young James Gandolfini uh, where he rapes and, and, and beats her and uh, Sean Penn's character essentially loses it goes on the run. The mental institution goes to pick him up and he shoots uh, one of the people from the mental institution. Uh, he ends up there for 10 years. But in that time, um, when he thinks he's only going to be, he, he doesn't really realize he's been there for 10 years. He thinks he's only been there for three months. He has no spatial <laughs> awareness because Robin White told him that he was only going to be there for three months. In that time that she's gone off and she's, she was pregnant at the time of the beating. So she has his child, but she's married John Travolta, who's this uh, construction. He owns his own construction company. She has got more kids, but, and now it's all about um, when Sean Penn gets out of the mental institution and him coming back to reclaim Robin Wright Penn and restart their life. And it's just this inner dynamic. And it's like, it's not an easy necessarily film to watch. It's, it's, um, but like three people who are at the top of their game and John Travolta, like really at the apex of like his, you know, his renaissance after Pulp Fiction and like really picking juicy, good roles to be in and not, I don't, you know, he's still John Travolta esque, but it's, but it, I don't know, it's kind of muted in a way where it's not, where you can still see the, the good acting chops where it's not kind of quite as a, a parody as, as such and not like, not face off esque, you know, which I, which I like face off, but I mean, it's just, it's not, you know, it's not to that, it's not to that. And you like uh, peaches too. So. Yeah. <laughs> so was, was, hours, was so this, talking about you, but. was this, was this, was this the sequel to Hurley Burley and the prequel to I am why Sam? You, you keep shitting on Hurley Burley. All right. I like Hurley Burley. <laughs> I didn't like uh, I am Sam. No, and no, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just no, but yes, I mean, like I am like you, and it's weird that he goes off to 97, 96, 97, 98. Those are wonderful times for these like small little films that really um, that you were going to get big stars in that you know in turn do these really star performances. I mean, yeah, the the the, um, the scenes with Sean Penn never obviously gets to the I am Sam or, you know, other sister kind of level. Um, and fuck you, man. Hurley Burley's all right. Like, no, no one else will like it. But, you know, when you sit down and at Mystery Movie Movie, number, many thought number seven. And Hurley Burley comes on. Like, <laughs> yeah. yes. You're like, this is just like, she's so lovely, except it's Sean Penn, Robin Wright Penn, and Kevin Spacey. And Chaz Palminteri. And Chaz Palminteri. And there's a lot of cooking. Um, okay. That's going to be the next film for, the next theme is, Ch- is Kevin Spacey. On this <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say the next theme is cocaine. I could do that as well. I could yeah. do that as well. That's the easy one. That is, too easy. Yeah. <laughs> too on the nose. <laughs> My third and final recommendation. Now we've veered into a star character. We have. Uh, telling the truth is a bitter. My last one is Cutter's Way. All right. Uh, yeah. Or yeah. also known as 
Cutter and Bone. Uh, 1981, Jeff Bridges, John Hurd, directed by Ivan Passer. Bridges sees a body being dumped and then decides to expose and blackmail the man he thinks is responsible with his friend, Alex Cutter, who's played by Hurd. Again, another dysfunctional duo, this platonic relationship about two men who are in their own different ways toxic to everyone around them. It's really good. Fun City Editions um, put out a Blu-ray of this that's that's worth looking at, worth checking out. Um, Radiance Films in the UK also partnered with them to put out um, another one there. But it is, it's such a, I don't know. It's a, it's a dark movie. It's a sort of post-Vietnam paranoia kind of film. In this era of... Young Bridges. And, yeah, yeah. In this era of things, of media disappearing, I, I do find it nice that there's all of these boutique houses that are yeah. buying up properties. Yeah. Have you checked out Radiance Films yet? I have not. So they're out of the UK. They're pretty new, but they're doing, you know, US releases too. But they just released um, A Woman Kills, which was this lost French film, like forever. Um, they're doing some, you know, Yakuza Honor films. And hmm. like they did a Blu-ray version of She Dies Tomorrow that's only in the UK right now. But like really cool stuff and like really nice packaging. Too. Right, right. So, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. My third is Robert Altman, 1974, California Split, with uh, yeah. Elliot Gould and Charles, or Charles, um, George Segal. Yeah. Uh, Elliot Gould is this lifetime gambler, hustler. They're at this table, um, they're, they're at this poker tournament, and um, Segal is dealing, they basically get caught up in this, what appears to be a cheating scandal, although they, what they weren't cheating, um, and they get rolled by a, a guy who accuses them of cheating, and then they kind of, Segal gets enamored with the lifestyle, and um, Elliot Gould lives with a couple of prostitutes and he's always basically on the make and he just pulls Seagal into this. He's a reporter and he pulls him into this lifestyle and Seagal gets completely wrapped up into it. And then and at the end finally realizes that it's, that it's empty and, and hollow and Seagal goes in this heater and wins $82,000 after being down and he was, he was up and then down and then up again. And, um, it's just a, it's it's like Mikey and Nikki in so much that you're just dropped into the lives of these men. Yeah. I mean, Altman was there's a whole world. I Altman guess. was perfect like this where he did the same thing, even with the long goodbye, where there's a, a Philip Marlowe plot around it. You're still just kind of dropped in and you're I mean, you're expected to pick it up immediately. Gould's so great in just kind of embodying that every man, but also kind of this like like this guy who kind of owns the world around him, but also is like living on the fringes. And you're just dropped in this life. You go from you go from racetrack to casino to, you know, to to betting on boxing and and like and every time it becomes this more and more. But also you didn't every time you get to a high, the, the lows get lower and lower. There's a scene where Seagal very much like in the in the in Mikey and Nikki, there's a scene where Seagal is going to sleep with one of the prostitutes um, that Gould lives with. And he finds out that he can't really do it. And like he gets interrupted and, and like kind of runs out of the room in shame. Um, and then he comes to, at the end, you know, it, it, he is on this huge role in, in Reno at the craps table. And this lone woman comes up and it's like, uh, I'm going to put a dollar on seven. It's my birthday. I'm going to put a dollar on seven. An entire, entire table. And Gould's like, here's a hundred to not just to go away to the and <laughs> and. The entire table is just like just yelling at her and screaming at her. And Seagal rolls again and rolls a seven. And they're like, you fucking you bitch. And he's, he's like, I don't care. It's my birthday. I won. And she picks up her two dollars and leaves. <laughs> it's, it's so it's just I mean, it's just such a fun like movie, like again, to pop in and out of and like to live the lives of these characters. And Seagal and Gould are, are just great in their roles of like just being these every man kind of like unassuming. Seagal's another guy I think who gets lost to history, who gets lost to sort of like just shoot me. 
Yeah, uh, and which like was a, that, actually not a bad no, no, series. No, no, right, too. right. But I mean, I think when you when I hear George Segal, I immediately think of his role in that sitcom rather than Born to Win, right, right, or or that movie, or The Hot Rock, or yeah. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I mean, I completely forget that right. he and he was hot. He was yeah, a hunky yeah. looking dude, man. <laughs> Another guy who could have played um, in Ishtar, I think, we could have played off those those roles yeah. again. I just, I, I, yeah. So going going back in that way, uh, you know, let's get let's get the Ishtar remake up and running. We'll let May direct it again. We'll just help her so out. You know with a few, like, I love. It. She's like, you know, guys, thanks for thinking about me, but fuck off. I just, <laughs> she would say it in, the in, desert. A, in, a, in a much funnier way, but I mean, essentially, it's, just that, right? Ishtar too. next time screamers tune in when we we where we will be talking about lost in translation her and sofia coppola and spike jones and our obsession with the two of them and their mtv romance we'll also be talking about skinamarink where two kids get stuck in a house with no windows and a weird voice coming from upstairs um, <laughs> other than that uh, that's all i got what about you no that's it oh. for me all right thanks for listening keep screaming you have been listening to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream with your hosts, Brock and Jason. If you like today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting whydoesthewilhelmscream.com. If you are in the VFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Till next time. <laughs>